A quick announcement before we start the show. Premier Props has announced that they're going to be auctioning off over 100 pieces of memorabilia, props, and costumes from the Mortal Kombat universe on December 10th. So stick around at the end of the episode to find out how you could own a piece of Mortal Kombat history or visit PremierProps.com for more information. Welcome to the Realmcast. official podcast, the original Mortal Kombat podcast, bringing you well-known and significant members of the Mortal Kombat community. I'm your host, the Mortal Kombat fan, Tim, and with me as always is my co-host, our lore master, Yanni. Welcome, Yanni. Thank you, fan, Tim. And today we'd like to welcome Larry Kasanoff, the man behind the production of, well, basically all of our favorite MKTV series and films and everything. Welcome, Larry. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you on. Um... First off, Larry, we'd love to ask our guests who their favorite Mortal Kombat characters are. Do you have any favorites? Well, that I, I guess that's sort of like asking a father who his favorite children are. <laughs> and, and, and even if you do, if you say one, then all the other kids get mad. So, you know, I sort of do, but I never say it out loud because all the others do get a bit upset. But we all, I always, I, I honestly think they're all great. And I'm going to give you a wimpy answer, which is I love them all because how could I pick one? And then what will happen to the others? That's a good answer. That's I a mean, beautiful answer, actually. Yeah, that's a fatherly yeah. answer. <laughs> right. It's only you can <laughs> so before we get too far into Mortal Kombat specifically, let's talk about you. You've had this extensive career as a producer outside of Mortal Kombat. Um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, before you started working in the movie industry, uh, you ended up getting a bachelor's and a, a master's from uh, 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 in, in business from Cornell University and Wal- Walton, or sorry, Wharton School of Business. How did you d- go from there to basically working for Vestron Pictures? So I wanted to be a movie producer since I was a little kid. I always knew. I was a little kid walking around saying, I'm going to Hollywood and I'm going to be a movie producer. And I had wonderful parents in Boston, but we had no, you know, not a lot of money and no real contacts. So I figured from the, from the idea of being a little kid, if I could get into good schools, I could somehow use those connections to get to Hollywood. And that's what happened. I got into Cornell undergraduate, and then I went to the Wharton School of Business for an MBA as graduate school, which is a great um, MBA school. And I did it because I figured, again, I would make great connections. And that worked. I did every possible internship I could possibly get. And I really got great ones. And the summer of my two years at Wharton, I got an internship at HBO in the film programming department. And from that, I heard all these stories about a guy named Austin who had left HBO recently to start something new in the new realm. This was the mid 1980s of home video. And while I had a job offer at HBO, I also got a job offer from Vestron, which was a new company. And I I had to take a shot. Do I gamble on a new company that will give me more responsibility or do I go with a tried and true? And actually my, my boss to be at HBO said, you got to take the shot because here you'll be in a cubicle for seven years, but there you'll be able to get into programming right away. So I went to Vestron in original programming, not movies. The first thing we did was making Michael Jackson's thriller, co-produced it, which was the first million selling home video cassette. And then after a year of making all kinds of things like that and great videos, we did projects with the Rolling Stones and Elton John. I 
the company decided that rather than just buying films, they would make films. And I, at the ripe old age, I think I was 25, became head of production. And my job was to deliver to the company 80 movies a year, 80. We were kind of like the Netflix of the day. Home video was booming like crazy. And so I had to deliver 80 movies a year to the company and make them, buy them, co-produce them. We don't care if you lose money, you're fired. That was my deal. <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you this story. So early into that, and mostly we made horror movies and, you know, action movies and, and kind of, you know, raunchy, sexy comedies like American Pie type stuff. And it was a blast. And, you know, a lot of them were crappy. A lot of them were great, but they all did, they all did a lot of business. And then along comes the movie Platoon. And I wanted to make Platoon, which was a really serious script about the Vietnam War. And this was not the kind of movie we made, but we had done one movie with Oliver Stone, his first movie. I thought it was great, even though it didn't do a lot of business. And my boss, Austin, said to me, you're crazy. This isn't what we do. The actors in the movie became famous, but they weren't famous. It wasn't a fun genre. It wasn't a happy movie. But I just had this instinct to do it. And my boss said to me, okay, you're the head of production. You can make it if you want, but you got to bet your job. If it fails, you're fired. What do you do? And oh, so, man. wow. I know. And so I'm, I'm months into the most amazing job in the world. I can't believe I have this job. And do I gamble at all? But then I thought, <laughs> well, I didn't get into the movie business to play it safe. And I took the gamble. Yeah. And, and I saw Platoon, you know, when we, I saw the final cut, it was early one morning in a film market in Italy. And I think I'm the only person in history to giggle their way through the first screening of Platoon because I thought, oh my God, I'm not getting fired. It's so good, yeah. I'm not getting fired. <laughs> it was so good that it won Best Picture mm -hmm. that year. A few months later, I ran into Oliver in a bar in New York one night and we had a drink and he said, you know, kid, I always liked you. You have a touch of the madness. And I thought, a touch of the madness? You mean like a little bit crazy? Is he calling me crazy? Am I crazy? But then it occurred to me, you know, Austin was a little crazy to let a 25-year-old kid with no experience run an 80-picture-a-year film slate. I was a little crazy to bet the best job in the world on it. And Oliver, you know, had done everything he could to say, this is the movie I'm making, come hell or high water, and he got it made. So we all mm -hmm. had a touch of the madness. And I decided I love that phrase. And it's kind of become what I think about all the time now, that to really make great movies and to really innovate in anything, you have to be a little bit crazy. You have to have a touch of the madness. Yeah, so definitely. I, 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 I stayed at Vestron for years and years and years. We wound up making Dirty Dancing and a bunch mm -hmm. of other great movies. And then it was wonderful, but I wanted to make bigger movies. All of our movies were, you know, capped out at about $10 million. And through a bunch of ways, I met uh, Jim Cameron. And he was starting a company and he needed someone to come and, and run it. So I, I joined with him. We announced the company. And a week later, we got a green light on Terminator 2. And so then uh, we made uh, we made T2 and True Lies and some other movies. But then I really wanted to expand into a bunch of other areas and video games and music and movies. And 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 I found Mortal Kombat and I decided to leave and start my own company. And my first project, uh, a threshold, my company I've had for years was Mortal Kombat. So that's the story. Now, let me go back a, wow. a little bit. <laughs> uh, so with, uh, you know, so. You, you said you ended up meeting Jim Cameron. How did that relationship go? Was it just that you had done so much with Platoon and Dirty Dancing that he was like, hey, you're doing a great job. Why don't you start Lightstorm uh, Entertainment with me? Or was it more of a, 
uh, a friendship that you guys decided to do a co-venture? No, no, no. So, so I had, uh, produced a movie at Bastion called Blue Steel, the Catherine Bigelow mm. directed with Jamie Lee Curtis and Ron Silver. And I had also made a movie called The Adventures of a No-Named Norm, which was directed by a guy named Stan Winston. Stan, in the day, was the leading physical creature maker in the world. And so Stan was one of Jim's best friends and Catherine was Jim's uh, soon wife. And I, I was close with both Catherine and Stan and they knew that I was looking to go and make bigger movies. And they both said to me, hey, Jim's going to start a company. He's looking for someone. That's how it happened. I mean, you, you co-founded Lightstorm Entertainment with him, as you said. And then a week later, you managed to land Terminator 2 Judgment Day. That's uh, well, we quite we the land. I mean, start to this new company. Jim had been working on it for quite a while. We had a great script. We were talking. But it was, it was getting very close anyway. Okay. It, wasn't like, it wasn't like we went from All zero right. to 100 a week. It was already in progress. That's why I think he was looking to hire people and, and do stuff. No, no, no. It was, it was more like that. All right. <laughs> that makes more that sense then. But yeah. were you, I mean, what, was this one of your main like production roles? Like, or were you just super, like, I'm, I'm not sure how f far your involvement with Terminator 2 extended. Oh, no. I, I, so I was head of the company and I was involved in production, marketing, finance, uh, merchandising, everything for Terminator. I lived, ate, breathed Terminator 2 for, I think it was 14 months. The day we Gosh. started until the day it was released, and even beyond, because it became so many other things. You know, theme park ride and toy deal, and yeah, we had this great. We had this great video we did with Guns and Roses that became the number one video of the year. So it was a no, it was a huge, all-encompassing thing. It's very at the time it was the most expensive movie ever made, and it was also the most technologically advanced movie ever made. So you can't really do that as a part-time job. Mm -hmm. It's, that's amazing to me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the the crew that went into Terminator 2, I mean, it was like uh, like lightning striking. You know, you had, uh, like you said, Stan Winston, James Cameron, yourself. And then you guys took that studio and then you went on and did things like The Abyss and True Lies and just kind of kept blowing it out of the water and really solidified that studio, in my, in my opinion, Lightstorm Entertainment. Uh, and everything they're doing now is is thanks to what happened to that studio in the 90s. So, uh, Well, I, I don't I, know about that, but thank you. But, but to, to be clear, <laughs> this had already been made by the time I got there. And what okay. we wanted from the Lightroom is we made a director's cut version of the Abyss. So we, oh. we, we went back and put some stuff mm. that Jim had always wanted to put in. But the movie had already been made and come out before I got there. It wasn't Lightroom at the time. Another company, yeah. The uh, director's cut of the Abyss... Uh, like you know i've had friends that have watched it and they're like oh it's okay but i always like no, no no did you see the director's cut because they have that whole new section where it kind of shows like the humanity uh and right. that's that why was, the aliens yeah right that's exactly right and that that was the thing that always was supposed to come out and i somehow i don't think made it into the theatrical version it was the humanity it was the aliens seeing our humanity that made them decide to give the planet a chance yeah, it was beautiful. Like, yeah, but was, so, the True Lies ended up being uh, your last project with them before you went ahead and found found the threshold. Is that right? Yes. What was it? Strange Days. No, Strange Days was a little around the same time, but a little before. Okay. 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 Yeah, the the release schedules are, are interesting. And that's when you decided to. You know, that's I, when you decided to move on and create the Threshold. I found all these great properties and. So what happened with Mortal Kombat is the um, the 
Terminator 2 pinball machine and arcade game became the most successful pinball machines and arcade games ever for the company who did them. It was called Midway at the time. And just if your audience doesn't know, and arcade games are those games that actually used to have to go to a place and put a coins in and play. <laughs> and, 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 and I became very friendly with the company and we were talking to them all the time about future movies. And one day they said to me, as I was thinking of going and starting this new company, because I became very interested after Terminator 2 in the whole notion that a movie can be the progenitor of a body of rights, which can today is called a franchise, then it wasn't, which can be movies and video games and TV shows and animation and live tours and music and so forth. And so they told me that as a, to tease me, they said, hey, we're testing a game in the arcades that looks like it's going to beat your record on Terminator 2. And I said, well, we can't have that. And I was in Chicago and I went, <laughs> anyway, and I played the game in the in the in the CEO's office, the CEO of Midway, and I turned around and I said, "This is Star Wars meets Enter the Dragon," meaning mm -hmm. you have the basics of a Hong Kong martial arts movie with all these cool bells and whistles, which is a great idea. It's my two favorite genres, and if you give me the rights, I promise you, I will make this in every medium in the world. So it was exactly what I was looking for. Neil, the CEO, looked at me and said, yeah, piece of crap video game. <laughs> he, he wasn't so convinced. <laughs> so it took me all summer to convince him to give me the rights. But then when I did, I thought this is exactly what I've been looking for, which is another property that we could turn into all these things. And so I left Lightstorm to once again, touch the madness, take a gamble and go start a new company based on a new property because I wanted to help my own company and make something that worked for everything. And I'm proud to say all these years later, we have turned into every medium in the world. But that's how I got it. Yeah, really. <laughs> I mean, as you started Threshold, you obviously demonstrated like there was some some love for the martial arts. I mean, Threshold had the subsidiary Black Belt TV. Um, but even like, before we jump heavily into Mortal Kombat, I'm curious about some of the projects that Threshold had. For example, uh, Conan the Adventurer TV series and Beowulf. I mean, these were obviously more, well, fantasy uh, sort of um projects, which, in my opinion, sort of demonstrated that kind of focus on that sort of genre for the company? Well, we love the genre, but, you know, it's, it's always interesting because it's hard sometimes for the audience to understand that usually the story behind the making of the movie usually has more drama than the actual movie. So mm. uh, Conan we loved and we wanted to do, but we, the legal the legalities of it prevented us from ever getting very far. A great project mm. and we love it and we still love it but we just we just couldn't but yeah we did try that and we do love that genre and we're still doing that genre beowulf was a crazy story where we agreed to make the movie because christopher lambert's a great friend of ours and we like him and believed in him and he started the movie but also because we wanted to now start a subsidiary to make our own animation we realized with mortal kombat which was about to be animation and other things we wanted to control it but we had never done it before so we needed a break. So we made this very creative deal on Beowulf, trading a lot of fees and stuff, if we could be the CGI animated company, just so we could get a credit, and just so we could try something. So we really made it for a very practical reason, as much as we liked it, because when the movie started, the company that was financing it went into chapter 11. And so we wound up having, you know, like, 20% of the money we were supposed to have to make the movie, but we were contractually obligated to finish. And we did have the money we, 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 we were supposed to get for our part of it. So we really sort of did the best we could with the movie, which 
you know, it's not the best thing in the world, but what could we do given the circumstances? But it did launch our animation company. And soon after that, we, we, we got a deal with IBM and then IBM became a huge uh, um, partner, or not partner, but supporter of ours and, and, and benefactor of ours. And so it, it, I mean, for the reason we had behind the scenes, Beowulf worked as a movie, not my best, but we tried. <laughs> and I still love our story. It was really no one's fault. It was just, you know, this happens sometimes. You're about to start and something happens with the financiers and what can you do? You do the best you can. Happens all yeah. the time. You know, I, I look at movies kind of like, you know, if I were the coach of a football team, you play, you know, 16 games a year, you hopefully have a long career and play a lot of games. You play the best game you can, then it's gone. You go make the next, the next week is a new game. How would we get our animation studio out of it? Yeah, exactly. And so let me ask you this shortly after Beowulf, uh, you know, there were, there were talks about Threshold doing not only the Duke Nukem movie, but also the Ninja Scroll movie. Were there plans for these to be animated movies or were they going to be uh, live action? We wanted those movies to be live action movies. Okay. Yeah, it's too bad. I, I would have loved to have seen it. I, I read up on some of the ideas you had for Duke Nukem, which sounded accurate to the source material the same way you did with the original Mortal Kombat. Uh, you know, it had Duke Nukem being the raunchy character that everybody loved in the video games. So I would have loved to have seen what Threshold would, would have done with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know, when you do what we do, you develop more things than you make and you hope you say to yourself, I hope everything we start developing, we're going to make. But again, mm -hmm. things happen sometimes really totally no one's fault, no one's control. It's just the game. And, and you just sometimes don't get it. We also are very particular that whenever we take an existing brand, I always say to myself, what's the essence of this brand? I mean, what do we really think made this brand successful? And if you nail that as a filmmaker and you infuse that in your movie, I think then you can infuse in lots of other things. So for example, if you think of a brand as a pyramid, if you think of Mortal Kombat when I got it as a pyramid, the top of the pyramid is not the video game. It's one down. The top of the period is the, mm -hmm. it, it, of the pyramid is the essence, in my opinion, that somehow got infused into that video game, which caused that video game to be successful. So I always thought, in my mind, that with Mortal Kombat, the top of the pyramid was empowerment. You know, if you get very, very mm -hmm. uh, into the game or into martial arts, you get very empowered because you realize you don't have to be the biggest and the best in the block to win. If you study hard and do the right thing, you can win. When I was deciding that summer and trying to convince Neil to give me the rights to Mortal Kombat, you know, it really was a huge risk. I mean, again, like at Best Trend, I was leaving a great opportunity to take a shot. And I was in an arcade, again, a place where you go where there are games you put quarters in. And I was wandering around watching people play the Mortal Kombat arcade game, trying to decide what to do. And a little 11 year old kid slapped a quarter down on the arcade game and he looked up to me and said i challenge you to mortal Kombat." and i said okay tough guy let's go and he beat the hell out of me i mean the kid <laughs> just decimated me and you know the game as you know makes you feel really good when you win sub zero wins you lose flawless victory and the kid left feeling 10 feet tall and i said to myself i'm going to do this because if we take that empowerment, and again, you know, it's wrapped in all this great visceral stuff, great fights, great music, great locations, great costumes, great cast, but at the core of it, in my mind, is empowerment. 
So often when we deal with other brands, we, it's the first thing we do. And if for some reason we don't come to a meeting of the minds of that, and we, we don't think the same thing, we know that we will be arguing with them the entire time. And we just politely say, you know, this was fun time to, you know, nice lunch time to go. So after this kid beat the hell out of you on the arcade, is is this when you decided I'm going to go for MK and you just made it happen? What was the story there? Exactly? Yeah, I, I did. I just redoubled my efforts to convince um, to convince uh, uh, Midway, and they weren't unconvinced about me. They just didn't quite see the vision of perhaps what they had. They were a bit more humble about it. They were a arcade game company in Chicago. Remember, no one had ever made a successful movie from a video game before. And and and, the, and so the, the word on the street was, you can't do this. When we finally announced it, I got so many calls saying, your career is over. What have you done? Video games don't make movies. This is, oh my, this is a disaster. So, you know, I mean, I kid around because Neil was a great guy and we were friends, but he was doing you know, what he thought was the right thing for his company because no one had ever done it. And no one wants to fail, you know, in front of the world, you, you got to take these shots. But I, I was just convinced. And especially, yes, that kid was a huge, a huge decision making factor. I'm curious, you know, you, you do mention that at, up to this point, nobody had made a successful video game movie. A lot of people would argue after this movie, also, oh, nobody's made a successful video game movie. What do you think it was about Mortal Kombat, the original movie that made it so successful um, as compared to everything else that's come out uh, ever since? Well, I mean, thank you again. But I mean, there have been some pretty good ones since then. But uh, I think that I think what I said earlier, I think we managed to capture the essence or the feel or the spirit of the game of what made the game successful in the movies and in the TV shows and in the stage show and in the other things we've done. We've always kept that feel. And I think that's it, because if, if you go to something that you love, like let's say you go to a restaurant you love and then you see that restaurant in another city and you were in that city, you go to that restaurant you hope that whatever you love from the first place is going to be there. And if it is, you probably love that restaurant too. So I think it's that. I think we managed to capture the essence or the spirit of what people loved about the game in the first movie and in the subsequent productions. Well, I I definitely see that with, honestly, most of the projects you, you've been involved with, or basically all, as we said, all the Mortal Kombat projects, because, I mean, you were executive producer for most of the projects. And... I like this pyramid sort of example you're giving us because that essence is something that we as fans love to see from the people in charge of bringing Mortal Kombat to life in whatever medium it is. And I, I, we, we actually spoke about this with Sean Catherine Derrick uh, when we were talking about Mortal Kombat Conquest. And to me, Mortal Kombat Conquest, Mortal Kombat 90, 1995 clearly showed that essence. Yes, it might have done things slightly differently from the games, but it was still an accurate representation and got, got that essence out there. But I'm just curious now as with your role as executive producer, what did that include in terms of your responsibilities regarding, uh, for example, Mortal Kombat 1995? So I was producer of the Mortal, of Mortal Kombat 1995 and Mortal Kombat 2, an executive producer of the TV stuff. It's virtually the same thing. It's just the way that the titles mix a little bit. Well, my, my job is your job as a producer is to marshal a thousand people into one creative vision and to, to oversee everything creative, production, marketing, and financial about the movie. To use the analogy of a real estate developer, of real estate, you are the developer. You are the person who says, We're going to build a 
skyscraper in a shopping mall there and here's how we're going to build it and here's the architect and here are the tenants and here's how we're going to market it and here's the money and here's what it's going to look like and here's how we're going to run it so that's what you do and so from mortal Kombat, you know when we started and we say okay we now have that essence there wasn't really much of a story behind mortal Kombat. so the first thing we had to do was write a backstory that we in our mind said this is the story from which the game came even though that wasn't really what happened but 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 we had to we had to do that and then you have to look and say, well, what's really important? And we decided that the, you know, the tagline of the first Mortal Kombat was nothing in the world has prepared you for this. And we got to do that. We have to make sure we're accurate. Nothing in the world has prepared you for this. So the locations were chosen. You know, we went all over the world in those movies to, to show the audience things that hadn't been seen in the second movie. We shot in Petra, for example, and we shot all over Thailand. And we, and we always found looks and feels that I thought were authentic to the game, but that you hadn't really seen before. And the other thing that was incredibly important and still is to me on the movies are the martial arts. I'm, I'm a huge stickler for, for the following in martial arts fights. My, my, my rule of thumb is you haven't seen it, but you see it, meaning it's a move you haven't seen before, but you actually see a human being do the move not a bunch of cut up hands and fists and then someone's on their feet. So if Liu Kang, you know, Robin is going to run and jump on uh, reptile shoulders in the first movie and then flip him over backwards. And reptile was Keith. He, he does it. We find a guy who can do it and we shoot it. So you see it. And the audience doesn't say to themselves, ah, oh, interesting. They didn't edit it out the way that this movie did, but deep, deep down, there's an authenticity to it because it's correct. And so we often have, I do, and a lot of people don't do this, we have a fight unit, a second unit, shooting the entire time on my productions, concurrently. <clears throat> and we would fly in someone for one kick because if they can do it better than anyone else in the world, we get them. And that's how we keep the authenticity there. You know, I'm sure you know this, but after we did the first movie, we screen test screened it. And when you test screen movies, it's, it's something that's a crazy experience because sometimes everyone says something different. Sometimes you're not sure. In this case, 99% of the audience said, love the movie, need more fights. So to New Line's credit, we went back to them. We proposed two additional fights, which I think were the best two fights in the movie, which were the one I just mentioned, Reptile and Liu Kang and Johnny Cage mm -hmm. and Scorpion. Mm -hmm. It cost millions and millions of dollars. And the studio said, yes, again, huge, huge kudos to them for, again, taking that shot. And we did it and we added it. But boy, I mean, those fights take days and days and days to shoot. And I'm telling you, if you saw someone, if you saw it, someone did it. So you as the audience, again, empowerment, think, well, you know, I could do that. And you're right. If you study long enough, you could do that. You know, those ended up being some of the fan favorite fights in the movie, too. So it's it's no. I'm, I'm glad they ended up making it into the movie because they're they're great. <laughs> you just got to movies are dynamic. You just have to keep going and going and going until you until you get it right. And hmm. the, the, we're so proud of those fights. We're so proud of the movie. But yeah, so we try the, re, the, the large answer to your question is because once you commit to the notion of here's the focus, here's the essence, here's the spirit of the movie, you then have to do it. And that does cause you know, arguments with certain people. No, I mean, it's not easy. We were the first in the second Mortal Kombat movie when we shot in Petra. We were the first crew ever to go into Jordan with a mixed Israeli, Jordanian, British, American crew. No one had ever done it before. And CNN came to cover it because, you know, there's a lot of unrest in the area. 
And I'll tell you this story that happened. So our first day in Jordan with a mixed crew, we're in some little shop. And, you know, again, they, we have Americans, British, Israelis, and Jordanians all about to work together. And our guide was an Israeli woman named Eti, and she was talking to the shopkeeper in some language, I don't know what language, and they switched to English. And he said, so where are you from? And she said, Tel Aviv. And everyone kind of tensed, and the shopkeeper kind of tensed. And she said, where are you from? And he said, Baghdad. And this was a time when there was a lot of stuff going on in Iraq. And she tensed. And then you saw everyone look like, who's next to me? And then one of them, two of them said, you know, we're supposed to be enemies. And then it really got, you see, you start to see guys kind of make fists with their hands at their sides. And it was this really tense moment. And at the same time, our guide and the shopkeeper said, eh, politicians. And they hugged and everyone applauded and everyone got, oh, and that's, you know, <laughs> that's movies. but I still had to convince a studio let me do that. And I still had to convince myself. I remember sitting in London the night before we left, think, watching CNN, thinking, am I doing the right thing here? But, yeah. you know, we did. And it worked. And so you have to really not just say nothing in the world has prepared you for this. I always thought if the first 30 seconds of the trailer didn't show people they're not prepared for this, we fail. So we had to do it. And yeah. that meant I had to fight tooth and nail with somebody to get a crew to Jordan and shoot in Petra. That's what we we're going to do. <laughs> let's, let's talk more about Mortal Kombat 95. Uh, when, you know, you kind of picked up the series, you, you had mentioned, you know, there wasn't a lot of story to it. Uh, did you have any specific background knowledge on Mortal Kombat before you picked up this project or uh, how'd you end up doing research and kind of getting some of the basics to build off of? Well, you know, we, we, we knew, we knew midway well because we had made a Terminator game with them and we let oh, yeah. them on the set. And that was the first time anyone had ever let, I think a video game crew shoot the actual sets of the movie. So again, the audience experience would be good. So we knew Ed and John, we knew Neil, we knew Roger Sharp. We knew the, we knew all the people and we had a good working relationship with them. They're, they're great guys. And, and so when we said, okay, we finally said, let's do this. Yeah, we spent a lot of time with Ed and John talking and talking and talking about the story and the game, what we want to do. We hired a writer uh, named Kevin Droney to help us. And I, I remember as, as he was starting to write, it was this horrible LA earthquake that took place. I mean, really the mm. major, major, major earthquake. And you know, everything was shut down. There were fires everywhere. I get this phone call saying, I think I can make it to your house. Uh, he, but we couldn't go to work. And so he, the earthquake didn't stop Kevin from coming over and he and I working on the treatment of the story all day. So these are the kind of people that we seek to have. If you have this kind of spirit in your movie, largely speaking, you're going to get a great movie. So working with the writer and working with Ed and John and the people at New Line, uh, we, we crafted a story and then from the story, the, the, the script and then the movie. But no, but I mean, there were a lot of things. And so we would say, you just have to ask yourself different questions. Remember, in a video game, your, your job is to make sure that the audience can decide the characters can go right, left, or straight when they come to a crossroads. In a movie, you have to make a choice. It's a little different. In a movie, you have to choose mm -hmm. for the characters. In a video game, you have to let the audience choose anyway. So it's a different mindset. So we'd have to decide, well, if we're going to have Raiden go straight at the crossroads, why would he do that? Who's, who's the character? What's the backstory? And that's how you fill it in. So then if with that in mind, I mean, you, you didn't have a set story ahead of time. You, as we said, like you had like a very basic 
sort of story that was provided by the games, but then you had to take it in your own direction with the whole team that you right. put together. So what sort of inspiration was there for the movie and the characters themselves then? Well, a lot of Mortal Kombat, and John will tell you, comes from uh, Asian myths and legends and stories. Mm-hmm. Coincidentally, purely coincidentally, I'm a huge, huge um, collector of, of old Asian art and antiques. I'm fascinated by Asian cultures. I've been a lot. So I, I know a bit about that, too, and I'm fascinated by it. So the basic inspiration did come from, from old Asian myths and legends and writings and gods and things like that. So it is infused in that. So it isn't a coincidence that, for example, we chose Thailand and Ayutthaya, the old capital of Thailand, to shoot in as opposed to, you know, Baltimore, because it, it was infused with that kind of uh, essence. When you were picking out, you, you kind of briefly touched on this a little bit previously, when you were picking out different cast members to come in that would, uh, uh, as you said, somebody who could do the specific set of moves, you would bring them in to do it. What was your casting process like? I mean, we, we've spoken before with a few of the casts on some of your projects, but what was it like from your point of view? Uh, we've we've heard crazy stories like like Chris Casamassa jumping over people and, and stuffing like that and stuff like that. But <laughs> what was it like bringing these different martial artists in and, and seeing what they can do and seeing if they fit these roles that you had imagined? Well, so so there, there's two times. So when you make a martial arts movie, you usually wind up with a question: Do we try and teach actors to fight? or fighters to act, uh-huh. what, what do you do? And there's not really a right or wrong to it, to tell you the truth. And in some cases, the fighters are just gonna fight because you know they will be stunt guys, they will be stunt people and, and, and doubles. But in, in some cases, like you want them to be able to do both and that's obviously uh, ideal. So we just scoured the world looking for uh, uh, the people who we thought in our mind would play the character. So you think to yourself, who should play this character? And you, you envision it. And then you, you try and see if a person comes in who goes, oh my God, that's what's in my head. That's what I was thinking. With the fighters, yeah, we had we had amazing fighters. Now, now Chris, we were introduced to by a legendary a trainer who wound up training everyone from Mortal Kombat named Steve Fisher. So Steve Fisher is like, he's passed away unfortunately, but Steve Fisher was like the real life Rocky trainer. And he, in his day in LA, was a huge, hugely successful karate guy, million uh, wins and, and trophies everywhere. You know, his motto was, it's mind over matter. I don't mind and you don't matter. And he was a tough, tough trainer, but a great guy with a heart of gold, place in the hood. And Chris was like his sort of, you know, adopted, not really, but adopted son. Chris was his protege. And mm-hmm. so he kept saying to me, you got to meet this guy, Chris. And then as soon as we met Chris... We, uh, we just really hit it off and friends ever since. But here's, I don't know if Chris told you the story because he's very humble, but we had some little event as we were getting people closer to Mortal Kombat. And someone was there talking a lot of, you know, crap about what a great fighter he is. And really great fighters don't talk about what great fighters they are. Yeah. Good fighters. <laughs> great. Yeah. And so as this guy is talking, 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 I could kill you, I could do this, I could do that. He's talking to Chris, who could kill the guy in 15 seconds. And I overheard it. And they didn't know I overheard it. And Chris didn't say a word. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. And I thought, okay, that humbleness. He did not feel he had to say, let me tell you who I am. Then and there. We were already using it. But I thought, this this guy, this is the real deal. Chris is a real master. This is the real deal. And we did really look for that. And we got the best people from all over the world. And yeah, it was a blast. 
but we were always trying to find extreme people, extremely funny. Um, we, it was very important to us that the women in all the Mortal Kombat's are both, you know, we wanted to be both very feminine and attractive, but also very strong. We have a rule that the, I had a rule that the women were at least as smart and at least as strong, if not smarter and stronger than the men. But that did not mean they could not also be beautiful. I mean, why right. a lot of times in action movies, women seem to have feel compelled to mitigate their beauty if they're going to be tough. I, I disagree with that. I think, you know, being a, yes. being a fighter as a woman is incredibly strong and sexy. So we look for people like that. I mean, I, I remember, you know, Kristana Loken, who was in the TV series. And we gave a lot of early model shots. We still do that. But I had this wonderful, crazy dog then who jumped on everyone and liked to play and fight. And and she bent down to tie her shoe, Kristana, and the dog came up to her, put his feet on her, on her kind of knee and just put his nose and his eyes and his teeth, like literally maybe a quarter of an inch from her face. And most people would spook a little bit when Kylie did that, the dog. She just stared at him for the entire time. She didn't move. And, and yeah. <laughs> the dog just wanted to lick her like crazy. And again, I thought, okay, she's got that look. That's that's what you want. You want that, you want that eye of the tiger. You want mm -hmm. the audience to believe that no matter what these characters are, they're funny, they're beautiful, they're strong, they could kill you. The whole point, Mortal Kombat, people really get killed. And so you want that what we call that eye of the tiger. And she had it. And, and so sometimes, yeah, sometimes we found it in a match we saw people at. Sometimes we found it in um uh you know in, in a dog. There was a I mean, we, Steve would show us, uh, uh, you know, we would bring fighters. We'd go to fights. We go to. I went to fights all over the world, and to find people like that, it was great. It was a blast. I, that that approach you had to the female characters is actually something that we've spoken about quite often when it comes to Mortal Kombat. We've we've always said because Mortal Kombat's always had really, I mean, the, the whole revealing outfits and stuff as well, both for men and women, uh, well, different species, et cetera, et cetera, within the series. And uh, what, one of the recent sort of developments seems to be that, I mean, within the fandom rather than the games themselves, it's just that the women can't be, for example, like with basic sort of stereotypical feminine, uh, feminine kind of looks to them but also be these amazing fighters. And the way you've put it is ex exactly how I've always considered the female characters of Mortal Kombat to be. They, they, they can look amazing. They can fight amazing. They're, they're, they're extremely cunning. You know, uh, that's, it's something that really shines through in all the portrayals uh, throughout Mortal Kombat 95, 97, uh, Conquest, etc. And uh, hearing that story about Kristana Loken is actually a very, a very cool one to hear as well. <laughs> yeah, that, that's really it. You really look for that. You know, we, 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 ha we still do that in other movies. We, we have that notion if it's an action movie with everybody, male, female, whatever, we, ha we ask ourselves, okay, they're great. They're this or that. Do you think they could kill you? Do they have mm. that look in their eye? You know, like if you look at a wolf or a tiger when they stand up and look at their prey, do they have that look? You know, one of the things we found... We've given for models. We've given a lot of models their first shot um, in in our, in our movie, and one of the things uh, we found is sometimes that you know real working models who travel around the world they 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 get this incredible kind of um, self confidence and self reliance. They're on catwalks. They're always staring at the audience. They're always looking. There's a little bit of an off puttedness to their performance on a catwalk. That actually turns out really well. Those are great skills for fighters. If you think yeah, about yeah, it, really. they, they, actually, yeah. They, they transform, yeah, they transform really, really well. And so we've, we've done it a, a, a million uh, times.
like that that stone cold look that you get when you're going down the catwalk you know it's just that's exactly very, right yeah and and that's that's a stone cold killer right there and <laughs> she's walking towards you <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly do, you, <laughs> do you have any other good stories about some of the, the castings that you had for some of these characters? Uh, like, what would you think the, your your best casting experience was? You know, we, we originally thought for Sonia, we being the studio and I, that we would get a supermodel. So, mm-hmm. you know, I ran around for a while, you know, meeting Cindy Crawford and and that whole realm of 90 supermodels who were all wonderful. And most of them wanted to do it. But the time commitment, given what they have to do in the rest of in their other life, was was too much. So we we, we tried that. was It was a fun experience, and the people we got wound up being great anyway. Or the casting experience. I mean, you know, I'm trying to think if I can say some of the people I, I passed on from Mortal Kombat. I probably shouldn't, but I mean, <laughs> you might say. I meet some really great people, but no, you know what? I don't know. I'm curious to hear the stories that other people have told you. Uh, um, But we were very, very, very specific. And what we did is we had a regular audition. And then if they passed that, we had a fight audition. Often we'd send them to Steve. He trained for a while. And then we'd go down and see how they could move just to make sure they were trainable. So, you know, previously when we spoke with uh, Jeff Meek, he mentioned that when he, he actually auditioned for Raiden in the original Mortal Kombat right. movie, and of course, you ended up casting him on Conquest. But uh, he had mentioned that he had auditioned with Cameron Diaz because at that time she was your Sonya Blade uh, planned. And do you want to tell us a little bit or tell our audience a little bit about that backstory with uh, the, the transition from Cameron Diaz uh, over to um, Bridget Wilson? Well, Cameron was our choice from day one. I mean, mm-hmm. she had done the mask with New Line. We loved her. She was it from day one. There was really, in our minds, no other uh, Sonya simply because we had, you know, it was the same studio and we, 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 we just loved her. She came to a sort of very sort of light workout training session. We kind of were just interested in some angles and how we shoot Sonya. And just in a fluke accident, just hitting a punching bag very, very, very lightly, she broke her wrist. Ooh. And so, uh, which, you know, it's just like a kind of freak thing, but that put her out of it because of the schedule. It was nothing more, nothing less than that. It was, um, and so that's when we thought, okay, maybe we'll get a supermodel. But we didn't have time to train them. And then, you know, we got obviously who we got, who was fantastic. Um, but yeah, it, so it wasn't like anyone settled for anyone. It was just that Cameron broke her wrist. And Jeff was great. Yeah. We loved Jeff. I mean, that's why we always remembered him from the movies and then brought him back from the series. It was just that for a movie, um, you know, Christopher, especially at the time, was incredibly well known from The Highlander and some in Tarzan. And what people don't know about Chris is that he's actually funny as hell. The, the line <laughs> in that in the movie where he says the fate of a thousand people depends on you. <laughs> Sorry. He had lived that. Chris was a funny guy. And so we wanted Raiden to be a fun guy. You know, all these protectors of the realms of Earth you see in other movies, these gods, they're always so serious. But we wanted him, in our backstory, one of the reasons why Raiden was the protector of the realm of Earth and why he worked for it so hard was because he did love this place. Mm-hmm. It's like getting an assignment in a foreign country and falling in love with the country. So wherever he came from, we, we in our minds, he loved Earth. So we wanted him to be kind of fun and a wise ass. You know, it's it's interesting they bring up Christopher Lambert because when he was cast for the role, um, there was a lot of controversy within the community because 
uh, up to this point, a lot of uh, the players had imagined Raiden as being Asian descent. Uh, but of course, Christopher Lambert came in and knocked out of the park. And he ended up setting the bar for Raiden for all the future series of, of Mortal Kombat. So I, I love hearing uh, kind of how his his personality shown through. And we talked to Jeff about this previously. Like he ended up doing his own version of Lambert's Raiden and knocking out of the park also and kind of adding to that personality. No, he Jeff had it down his face. He was great about that. There was even one episode towards the end where he's actually drunk. He he was great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he, was, he was a phenomenal Raiden as well. I mean, and then Chris, Chris just wasn't in the second movie again just because of scheduling. But Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. But the the point that the actors sort of made their mark is is a very big one for the Mortal Kombat uh, series as a whole because the way that they portrayed them had a huge influence going even just through the games themselves. Like we, we mentioned Christopher Lambert, but looking at, uh, for example, Trevor Goddard, uh, like Kano was completely changed to be like Australian and based upon Trevor Goddard's uh, per, uh, portrayal of, the, of Kano himself. Well, here's what happened with Kano. So when we were developing the character look and design for the movie, now you have a video game and you have to turn into real people. So because I had just done Terminator 2 and because one of the looks of the Arnold as the Terminator was kind of his face half blown off and he, he looked a little like Kano. And so mm-hmm. I thought glibly, well, I'll just change Kano because I don't want, you know, I don't want the audience to think well, we did the same thing from T2. Again, little kids saved the day. So we had the sixth grade group in just to show them around the studios we were building the sets. And as we showed them the character design, so this is where an artist draws the human being rendering of what it will look like. We had changed Kano. And this little kids said, who's that? We said, well, Kano. He goes, and the kids started breathing heavily. And like, like he was panicking and, and, and he said, that's not Kano. And I said, well, we're changing Kano because I just did Terminator. And, we, and he goes, no, no, you can't change. And the kid had like an anxiety attack. Kid. And, and so then and there, once again, saved by a little kid, we thought oh, we're not changing Kano. So we changed yeah. Kano back. But we loved Trevor and we loved the idea that how do you take the Kano type character, which is normally, you know, a scuzzbag and make him charming. And Trevor mm. just was charming. And, you know, I, I, I unfortunately, you know, Trevor passed away. But, but if, you know, for years, every time I would see Trevor talking to Trevor on the phone, I'd say, oh, baby, did you miss me? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, why not have these things be fun? Why not laugh? You're going to see a movie, but especially Mortal Kombat, to have fun. I think fun yeah. is wildly underrated these days. And so we wanted Kano to be fun and Raiden to be fun. It isn't all serious. You know, they are killing people left and right. And so you have mm-hmm. to mitigate that with some humor. Yeah. And and Kano was charming as hell. And we liked Kano being charming as hell. Yeah, so Trevor was great. And we have to every single Mortal Kombat fan around the world has to thank that kid just for this moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the message is if you want to make movies, hang around little kids, I guess. <laughs> I, I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> I'm curious. Was your Kano, was uh, the direction that you're going for back then before this kid kind of persuaded you otherwise, was it similar to what they ended up doing with the 2021 Kano? No, it, it, it really had, you know, it, it really had to do with the fact that T2 was so successful 
And that look mm-hmm. of Arnold as the Terminator, you know, with biological skin over a Terminator skeleton. And, and for part of the movie, half of, you know, one side of his face is, is sort of blown off and, and he's got the metal exposed. It really was. And it wasn't because I was, I did Terminator 2. It was just because I thought the audience that didn't know the game would think mm-hmm. it was maybe a ripoff or something. And, gotcha. you know, yeah. you have to understand, if you're going to make a movie now of a game, you have to say to yourself, if you're a huge fan of the game, you have to love the movie. But if you've never heard of the game, you should also love the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as it turned out, we, the kid prevailed and no one even noticed and no one even said. And, <laughs> you know, he, he, he was a big personality. So I think he more overcame his look. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Was there, I mean, prior obviously to the news regarding Trevor Goddard, uh, was there any plan to maybe bring him back in for Annihilation or like Kano in general? You know, it's a really good question, and you really have a tough time when you're making sequels because the audience misses and wants what they just had, but if you give them what they just had, it's boring. If you change it too much, it's a risk. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we had that problem with Shang Tsung. And, mm-hmm. and I remember talking to Kerry saying, he's saying, well, when do we start? And I said, Kerry, you, you died. I mean, we love you. <laughs> <laughs> And so our, our decision, rightly or wrongly, was we want there to be stakes in this. When people die, we want the audience to think they're gone and to feel bad. And they have gone an emotional roller coaster. Otherwise, you know, future movies, if someone gets killed, the audience will say, ah, it's no big deal. They're coming back and they'll stop caring. So we would have loved to have done that. But the rule we established was that if you're dead, you're gone. You know, for the, you know, especially more for the, 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 the lead or the bigger characters. I don't know that we would ever do that for a scorpion or something, but, you know, who are really mystical kind of spiritual characters. Right. But yeah, for Kane, it was human. And so if he's dead, how could he come back? It was too wow. bad. We, we, yeah. we were trying to figure it out. But. It's such an interesting change of approach, actually, because nowadays, whenever a character in Mortal Kombat dies, everybody just says, well, it's Mortal Kombat. They'll be back. They're just going to the nether realm, you know, our, even our with the latest movie. That. Yeah, I mean, we've had several different guests that come on and, you know, we've asked them these questions and they were usually like, well, it's Mortal Kombat. You can always come back. And yeah, so it's, it's interesting to hear that you say that, especially. You know, the other thing too that happens when a franchise gets this big is it just does get very, very big. And at a point, it's hard to keep, you know, sometimes that happens and sometimes I guess it's okay. You can, you know, you can you can make exceptions. But in those days when we were new, newer to it and we were, you know, we're still growing, I really wanted people to think there were stakes. I mean, the thing I don't like in, mm-hmm. in fight movies or in action movies is when someone gets hit in the head with a shovel 16 times and he just shakes it off. <laughs> you know, the, the idea was, in our first movie especially, if someone has the opportunity to kill you, they're going to kill you. They're not going to be in an early, you know, in a Roger Moore, James Bond movie where they, they have you in their gun sights and then they turn their back, walk around and say, but you know what led me here when I was a child? And no, they're going to, you know, they're going to kill you. And so mm-hmm. we wanted people <laughs> to take that seriously. You know, in the first movie, we had a big choice about what did we do with the fatalities? And because mm-hmm. if we show them too much, the movie would be rated R. But the reason I decided not to was because I thought, you know, if the movie gets too, not violent, but too bloody, it's going to look mm-hmm. like a slasher movie. And that's yeah, not, yeah. and remember, our point was nothing in the world has prepared you for this. And at that time, there had not been a really great martial arts movie for a long time. 
Yeah. It's a funny thing about martial arts. There are not that many great martial arts movies throughout history, but when one comes along, it does fantastically well, and everyone says, well, we should make more of these, and then no one does for a while. Be mm-hmm. Because it's a, I have a theory why, but it's a long a process. And, and so we wanted the idea that these martial arts are deadly and more interesting to watch than what would have in those days been more of a slasher movie and the effects aren't as good as they are today. So we decided again that if the, you know, if, if one of our characters kills you or someone gets killed, they're dead. I'm curious as to your theory, because one of the things that many Mortal Kombat fans have been saying for a very long time is that when a new Mortal Kombat movie or any Mortal Kombat content comes out is we want a heavy focus on martial arts because that's, you know, such a focal point for the series itself. And to the point where prior to MK2021 releasing, uh, Phantom and I were talking on the Rumcast saying how we were happy to hear that certain stunt, uh, certain actors who were known for just for stunts were getting major roles. So what yeah. is your theory on uh, martial arts movies not doing so well? No, they do well. They always do well. It's just it's hard to get them made. And the reason for that is twofold, is that one, usually the fans of them are not necessarily the same demographic of people at studios who finance them. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard to do that. I, I, I've had conversations where I've said to people, in certain Mortal Kombat productions, you're not going to get invited to the Met Gala in at the you know Museum of Modern Art in New York. I mean, the Museum of Art in New York, uh, because you're involved in Mortal Kombat. You will get rich and famous, but you not you know that way because these are usually they usually don't appeal maybe to the uh, sort of country club set who maybe greenlights movies. The other mm-hmm. thing is, it is hard to explain to someone the things I've told you that we're going to spend extra time and extra money shooting more fights. We're not going to shoot a fight in two hours. There are movies I could tell you I won't because they're not mine. Massive, massive $150 million movies with some of the biggest fight scenes have been shot in six hours. They're usually just left to later. I don't believe in that. So that means I have to also convince people, the other side of being a producer is you have to get the money, that we're going to spend extra time and extra money shooting this fight because, because you know, Timo's round kick is a teeny bit better than Yanni's round kick, and therefore we're using Timo, even though... He happens to be 6,000 miles away. We're going to bring him in for that character. That's how you make a great movie. But if you don't really look at it that way, it's hard to convince people of it. Ah, it's all the same. It's just a bunch of fighting. We hear that all the time. And so hmm. we're constantly, constantly, constantly uh, convincing people it's worth the time and effort. It's worth the craftsmanship. And as I said, the, the audience, I, I believe the audience knows at a deep down level. Well, that's actually a very comparable to what people are saying about, I mean, video games, for example. I mean, more recently, video games have been getting a better sort of, there's a stigma behind them where, oh, it's just a video game. It's it's not like it, it can't be considered this work of art and such. But then there are video games which are considered to be sort of, yeah. it, regardless if it's a cinematic masterpiece or just a gaming masterpiece. And it could just be the, I guess, the audience or the world sort of catching up, I suppose. Well, video games, I think, are a little—I think—are a little bit different. They started differently. It, it, it is generally run by a kind of younger group. I mean, I think some video games today are just beautifully rendered, mm. and it, it is an interesting question. This is my theory, but we ask about it all the time. We 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 are developing a, a whole other martial arts movie we hope to do uh, next year, and the same thing is we, we're having these conversations once again. I think. All these Mortal Kombat productions, after all these times, all of which, thank goodness, have been number one, 
I'm still having the same conversation I had 25 years ago, which is no, no, no. We have to spend time in the fights. We have to do this. We have to get this fight or this person. I know they're great. They can't fight. We, and we have to do these things, but you just have to. And it doesn't matter really. People don't say it out of being mean or ignorant. It's just not their jam. It's not what they do every day, but it is what I do yeah. every day. So you have to fight you know, for it. That's really interesting too, because the, you know, this definition that you, you've given of, of your ideas, it, it kind of ties into some of the more popular martial arts movies that are going on right now. Like for example, the John Wick series, which is a whole community of stunt makers and martial artists, which have come together to make this series of movies. Um, and, and, you know, as you've kind of defined that, that really kind of plays out with what's becoming popular in pop culture with uh, some of these newer martial arts type of films. Um, with your new martial arts movie that you guys have working on, are you taking a similar approach to that? Yeah, so the new, I guess I can tell you, but we usually don't talk about things in development, but it's in development and it's called The Fearless and the Fallen. And it's a fantasy martial arts movie, but this movie is really, really, really wild. Think of, I mean, I mean this uh, metaphorically, think of the TV show Euphoria mixed with a martial arts movie. It is sexy, it is wild, it is over the top, it's crazy, it's great, it's beautiful. Uh, It's, I can't announce this yet, but it's going to shoot in this magical, wonderful place we found. And it is just wow, wow, wow. So all the things we've done before, we're pushing even more. Because I think the audience in general is a little bit bored. And I think the audience has seen a lot of the same things and there's a lot of political correctness. And I think... People just want to break out and have fun. So, yeah, and, and but yes, and we are having the same conversation all over the world that we have to get this person because they can fight better than that person. And it's an easy discussion to have with guys like you, but sometimes a hard discussion to have in a boardroom in some foreign country yeah. where people aren't so interested in that. But I do. I still do it. And I think of it more than ever. I still meet fighters all the time. I still look at martial arts all the time. I still go to fights all the time. We, we're always looking you know, uh, with you, you kind of mentioned in bringing in all these different people with the Mortal Kombat series, you ended up bringing in uh, not just martial artists, but you did end up bringing in characters that were not well known or, or were not known at all, like uh, Luke Kang's brother, for example, um, and Kenneth Edwards playing Art Lean. Did you see these characters becoming such a uh, impactful part of Mortal Kombat lore at, at that time or? Like, what was your idea to bring these people in? Was it just to give the fighter something more to fight for? Or did you kind well, of... We didn't, we, didn't, we didn't think about it that way. You know, you have a... I'm sure Sean told you when you have a series, you have whatever mm-hmm. it's 24 or 26 episodes, you have a lot of characters to program. And you have a lot of interesting people to come in and meet. And so wherever we could, we picked them up from some Mortal Kombat lore, even if they were only, only mentioned a little bit. And in some cases, we just made up new ones because we wanted to expand it. But... You know, at the time, we also had an animated TV series on USA Network. And we, we split the time really differently so that, that the, the live action TV show was, I think, 500 years ago in our mind. And the animated series was a little, another time and the movies were another time. So we could play it that way on purpose. But, yeah, we tried to use everyone we could. And then we thought, well, let's, again, develop interesting backstories for them. 
Let's mm-hmm. figure out, you know, just because you've seen them once doesn't mean they're not deserving of an entire backstory. It's like what it's like what Sony is doing now with Spider-Man. They're taking everything from the pages of Spider-Man and finding characters and really saying, well, this, let, let's come up with a basis for, for a great story for this character. That's what we did. And, you know, it, but it's just practical when you have a TV series. You have, you have a lot, it's 24 hours of stuff you have to write and you have to come up with interesting characters. So we always tried to make the characters interesting. And we tried to make our three heroes not really knowing what they were doing. So they didn't really know who was. They made mistakes. They didn't know it was going to be bad. Their egos got the best of them. They weren't. They were very flawed, our three main characters, which we did on purpose. So it wasn't to say, let's make this character more important in the lore of Mortal Kombat. It was, it's always, let's make a great show. And then if we do, everyone will get more important. Well, one thing that I actually did find very interesting and a sort of similarity, I suppose, between the show and Mortal Kombat 1995 is uh, the topic that you mentioned earlier regarding the gore. You co- obviously couldn't make it too gory, uh, otherwise it would be considered to be a slasher. But what you did manage to do very well were certain fatalities. Now, for example, in 95, you had Liu Kang's brother uh, getting his head, his neck snapped by Shang Tsung in front of Liu. You had um, Art Lean getting basically crushed, I suppose, uh, how I would describe it, by Goro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> who became such an icon. <laughs> um, but then you had Conquest, which I'm not sure if I would say it was more gory or less gory, because the most the most gore, I suppose, I would say Conquest had was the episode with Tomas, as we mentioned on the episode with John Catherine Derrick. Uh, I think it was short. No, I think we mentioned that with uh, Daniel... Uh, Bernhardt. Bernhardt, yeah. And uh, so... Tomas gets his face melted off by one of the reptiles. And uh, it's sort of like that weird sort of balance you managed. What, what, what did you decide on? How did you think in the end, okay, this is all right, or this isn't too much, or maybe we need a bit more? What was the thinking behind that? We're just trying to do new and different. And we're trying to keep to the idea of empowerment. And I, I think that it is hard sometimes on a movie screen to out-affect somebody else in terms of things like face melting off. I mean, the character's face melted off at the end of the first, I love Indiana Jones, the end of the first Indiana Jones. You you can see these things other places. But what we thought we were doing differently, and I still stand by that, is we were showing really better martial artists than anyone else at the time. What we did on that series, and you have to give all these credit to these wonderful martial arts like like J.J. Perry and, and, and... Chris and Casamas and Daniel and others, we had three martial arts fights per episode. I mean, mm-hmm. we had an entire fight unit shooting the entire time. With, there were two units shooting concurrently the entire time. So they had a, we had a write, design, choreograph, sh- and shoot three fight scenes in every episode. That's a lot. And they were great fight scenes. And how do you do it? You get fighters who can really do it. So I think to our audience, if we were saying, well, what do we want to see in these next two minutes? An effect, which is cool, but we've seen it before, or a fight move you've never seen. There was yeah. a guy in, in, who we used in, um, in the series named, um, we used to call him Master Kimball, Master Kimball Sullivan. And he was from Brazil. And he was the best capoeira guy, Brazilian martial arts I've ever seen. The guy was unbelievable. I mean, you could say hello and he could do 16 moves and be behind you by the time you got from the hello. <laughs> <laughs> so, so people like that and these fighters, we thought that was much more unusual and rare on TV than to show some of the gore. That was why. That's, yeah. I mean, 
I think that that worked out very well for Conquest. Uh, that's, I, I've, again, I've said this on past episodes. I absolutely loved Mortal Kombat Conquest. And a huge part of that was down to the fact that the combat got so much focus rather than just special effects at, at all right. times. But one, one thing that I did find very interesting, again, a comparison between Mortal Kombat Conquest and Mortal Kombat 1995 was how the characters themselves had this this influence on the later on the on the later series so for example now everybody well actually since even the 3d era of mortal kombat people have been asking to see um the characters from mortal kombat conquest we want to see zero we want to see taja we finally saw in some aspect uh the great kung lao because these these shows and these movies had such an influence now for example talisa soto talisa soto was such an such a good casting for the Mortal Kombat world because now, or at least as of the movie itself, many fans considered Kitana to be Latina rather than Asian. And it's, 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 it's so interesting to see that because now Kitana has gone through such certain variations, such as initially being, I mean, for example, myself and many fans thought initially, oh, she looks, she seems to be Persian or something, or even Greek or something based on the mythology uh, that Mortal Kombat was taken from in certain aspects, but then also Asian, as we've seen in the later, in the latest game in Mortal Kombat 11. But Talisa Soto really had such an influential sort of, uh, well, impact, I suppose, on the Mortal Kombat fandom. And you see that throughout the different uh, mediums of Mortal Kombat. You know, after the first movie, some, I forget the magazine, but some magazine wrote this wonderful article sort of giving us, not an award, but kudos for all the... Um, inclusive casting we did. And I really felt funny about it because it'd be very disingenuous of me to say we did inclusive casting. No, we cast the best people we could find regardless of all that stuff. We just cast great people. And if you just cast great people, you will wind up being incredibly inclusive because when you open the world to everybody, the world's a big place. So yeah. we didn't really plan it like you might today. We have to have, make sure we do this and that. We just planned for great people who had a look that we believed was the essence of the character. And it is hard to, and we wanted, we did want you to say, well, these are supposed, half of these people aren't from earth. So you yeah. want the audience to say, wait a minute, is this, you don't want it to go, ah, I get it. This guy's from, you know, like imagine if Talisa's character was, you know, had a Bronx accent and was chewing bubblegum all the time, you know. <laughs> You're not going to believe she's, she's, she's who she is. So yeah. I always believe if you just cast great people, you will have an incredibly inclusive and diverse cast. I, I believe diversity is not just uh, race. I believe it's, it's age and race and gender and socioeconomic background and yes. in education. And if you look at the world that way, boy, is it fun because you yeah. use into your movie all these great um, all, all, all these great ideas that you wouldn't have thought of. I'll give you a current example. We did a, a year and a half ago an animated movie for Universal called Bobbleheads. And shares in the movie and because the pandemic was starting with Microsoft and NVIDIA, we built a network, a worldwide digital production network of animators around the world, which we now still use. It worked great even during the pandemic. But, you know, bobbleheads, you know, big heads that bobble back and forth. And some of our animators in that movie were from India. Well, it turns out 
bobbleheads were invented in India like 1,200 years ago. And so as we're trying to figure out how do you do that kind of head bobble, the yes, no, maybe thing, we had, these, <laughs> we had all these people for whom it was really a part of their culture. And they yeah. therefore were able to help us in a way we had no idea, we didn't foresee, but was wonderful. That to me is diversity. You cast everyone yeah. from everywhere around the world because it's great and it's fun and it's interesting and the audience loves it because you're doing it purely for the goal of making a great movie. There's no guilt. There's no, I got to do this. And then you're going to get an incredibly diverse cast. And the audience is going to love it because we want to make movies for the whole world. And by that thinking, how I've always thought, that's how you find people like Talitha. There was no thought whatsoever as to Talitha's ethnicity. It was just a thought as to, is she or is she not Katana? And then you wind up with someone who happens to be, I would have a diverse background. Yeah. You know, those characters that you ended up, or the, the actors that you ended up hiring for these characters, uh, as we mentioned, they're iconic. Like, uh, Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa, I mean, mm. is Shang Tsung, and he's been Shang Tsung in almost every rendition of Mortal Kombat since since the movie. Um, I, I'm curious, did you see that uh, Kerry, Lyndon, and uh, Bridget Wilson end up reprising their roles in the video game for Mortal Kombat 11? And Christopher Lambert, too. Yeah, that's right. Had you seen that they had ended up being in the games again, or being in yeah, the well, games well, 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 and... What we always tried to do, and one of my uh, jobs, it was always been to try and unite everybody. So, for example, when Mortal Kombat was starting, we see now we're going to have in short succession a movie, a TV series, an animated TV series, another movie, um, a, a soundtrack album, another soundtrack album. I mean, a live tour. Remember, the, the day that Mortal Kombat came out in theaters and broke records, I didn't even have I didn't even celebrate. I got on a plane that Sunday flew to upstate New York to start rehearsing the Radio City Music Hall live show. It was so many things at once. And wherever I could get everyone together, so the marketing was crossed on and the people were crossed on. And can we put, I would say to Ed and John all the time, can we put this person in the game? Or do you have someone from the game can we put in the movie? We wanted to do it as much as possible and to the extent that sometimes it would it would happen just because that people, everyone got used to doing it without me, you know, doing it at once, like the spark had caught fire. We love that. Mm -hmm. That's great. I want everyone everywhere because, you know, we work for the audience and that's what we do this for. And so we want the audience to get a consistency of entertainment that makes sense for them. So if they get to believe that someone's iconic and this person is the character, yeah, they should see that face everywhere. And, and But, you know, it is a lot of people and you hope everyone participates and people have largely been great. That's just a smart way to run a franchise. They're still doing it. I mean, you know, a lot of the I'm sorry, a lot of these guys are still going to comic conventions every weekend. They're they're still doing it. It's great. Oh, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I want it. I want to talk a little bit about the live tour. But before I jump into that, um, you know, Mortal Kombat the original movie was uh, basically filmed entirely in Thailand. Um, what was your decision to end up shooting there? And did you guys run into any production issues while you were shooting there? Because uh, myself and Yanni have spent a lot of time in Thailand, and we know, you know, some of the difficulties of being in that country. Did you guys have any issues while you were there? Well, the the first movie was shot. The stages, the interiors were all done in Los Angeles, and the exteriors were all done in Thailand. Uh, okay. No, the Thai people, and we shot the second movie there too. The Thai people were absolutely fantastic. It is one of my favorite countries in the world. I cannot recommend it enough to shoot, to go, to whatever. <laughs> Why there? Because we went all over the world scouting. Mm -hmm. We wanted to see something that we felt evoked the look, but you'd never really seen before. Again, nothing in the world has prepared you for this. So Ayudia, 
And mm-hmm. you know, where we shot those, we used to call them the upside down ice cream cones, which is a terribly callous way of re- referring to their temples, but <laughs> and in a Western movie. And the, the islands in the South could be oh, oh my, just stunning. And, and, and the rubber plantation we shot in. So it just looked like, again, what we wanted to shoot and what we envisioned and nothing in the world has prepared you for this. But I cannot emphasize to you enough how wonderful the Thai people were. And even all these years later, when we get together with some of the crew from the first movie, everyone still talks about Thailand. I've been many times since. And, and we, I, it, no, I, I wish I had some crazy bad story, but I only have crazy no. stories. We're they, glad you don't. No, <laughs> Thailand is just, they were just wonderful. And we felt like we were, you know, honorary Thai people. They gave me a Thai name and, um, and, and, no, they were they were just absolutely great. Well, I have to ask now. What is your Thai name? Uh, well, it, it's it, it's a it, it you know it it means um it means uh, it sounds a mine's bit, elephant. It means, if it makes you feel better, <laughs> <laughs> it it one who leads up or something like that. But but you know, I I will tell you one thing. You, you know, where we stayed in Krabi mm-hmm. was. Uh, on a little island, so you need to you need to flag down a kind of little teak longboat to get there. There was no other way to get there yeah. to your actual room. Mm-hmm. And so I remember coming home one night from shooting, and you, you flag down a little boat. You're wearing shorts and a t-shirt, and you're you're coming home. And I remember thinking, and you know, you drop off the boat, you walk through the water to get to your little bungalow. And I remember thinking, this is amazing. Wouldn't it be great if I could go to work like this? And then I thought, wait a minute, I am going to work like that. (laughs) It was so fun. You even forgot you were working. It was just great. The other thing that happened on that little place is that there were monkeys. And the monkeys within the trees around and everyone got a little bungalow. And the monkeys didn't like Lyndon Ashby. So for some reason, (laughs) he was a couple of times. And I said, what do you do? You got like no commute. It's like three minutes in the boat. And he said, I'm telling you, the monkeys are throwing coconuts at me. And it turned out they were. We don't know why. The monkeys just didn't like him and surrounded his little place. And they were tossing coconuts at him. Oh, my God. <laughs> the monkeys didn't like him. This is the first I've ever heard of this. <laughs> but it was, oh, my God, it was just great. And we um, we did something unusual. You know, most movies shoot exteriors first, then go interiors. We did the opposite. And mm-hmm. we did that because then the entire crew was now in Thailand with a free ticket home. So almost everyone, nice. including me, went on vacation afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That sounds like a blast. That is amazing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, around the same time that Mortal Kombat came out, uh, you guys also, with Threshold Entertainment, also released Mortal Kombat The Journey Begins. What was your idea about doing The Journey Begins? Uh, was it, a, you know, you got a chance to use your CG animation in uh, the whole, that whole new department you guys had, but... Uh, what inspired you to make this particular little short film? Uh, well, it wasn't so short. I think it was an hour, but it was the. F- I think it was mm. the first or one of the first uh, mocapped CGI motion capture yeah. CGI things ever done. And that mocap technology, we had a theory would work because again, we were always trying to think. Okay, when we take this into CGI and we take this into. Um, animation how again can we preserve the martial arts because while you can animate martial arts wonderfully it's still hard because 
to get that yeah. timing down is very, very difficult. You know, over the years, we've been asked many times, do we want to make a movie with a CGI photorealistic Bruce Lee? And while the technology is there, who, who, who knows that timing? It's saying like, you want to make a movie with a photorealistic Fred Astaire. Well, you still got to have the timing of Fred Astaire. So I always refuse it. So that what that's what it was. It was to take you into a different fantasy world using motion capture and hoping that with the motion capture, we could actually capture the martial arts in CG in a way that had not yet been done. The various stories that you had on there, you had like, uh, you, you know, kind of backstories on, on your different characters, especially... Uh, some of the antagonists, uh, like uh, you got to see Sub-Zero and Scorpion's feud. Uh, you got to see, which I think is probably one of the most interesting and has stuck in the lore the most. It was Goro's heritage. Um, where did these story ideas come from or, or why did you guys decide to include those in The Journey Begins? Because it's called The Journey Begins. So we were just trying to to have <laughs> some other way of having people look at it and understand that. Like, for example... You know, we had this whole intense backstory for Goro. We really wanted him to be, just because we thought it was cool, like in his world, a prince. And in the, in the movie, in the first movie, Goro was meant to have a pet panther. And there was oh. in those days, you were still using animals as animals. They weren't, they weren't the yeah. CGI wasn't good enough yet to use CGI animals. And there was a wonderful place not too far from L.A., where they trained animals for the movies. And the kind of local mascot around the ranch was a spotted black panther named Paco. And when you go visit them, Paco was like tied up in the front like a family dog. But so we, we, we so Paco became a jeweled, jeweled collar, I think, and he was supposed to be uh, Goro's pet panther. Yeah. Well, we brought Paco onto the set to introduce the panther to the you know, to the CGI girl, boom, Paco was absolutely having none of it. He freaked out. He, he looked at Goro as a monster and he went crazy. Yeah. And so you can't, have, oh. you can't have a crazy panther running around the set. So we, we, I don't think we really pulled that off in the movie, but our goal was that he was supposed to be very, 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 in his world, elegant. He was a prince. He was, you know, general of the armies of Shokan. He, we wanted him in his world to have a kind of a gravitas to him. So some of those things, which maybe couldn't do in the movies, we then got a chance to tell the audience what we were thinking about in the journey begins. Hmm. Uh, based on this, I like to think that the Panther Paco now served as the original inspiration for Kotal Khan's, uh, <laughs> I guess, animality transformation in MK11. So it's, seems like the journey begins was really more of a, a kind of hook point, uh, a way for people to sort of look at, to learn about Mortal Kombat or at least the sort of basics and get a bit of an understanding to introduce them to the movie, if yeah, I'm understanding to, correctly. To introduce them to the lore, because if people like something, they then go back and want to learn more about it. But we, again, we tried to say, we tried to create a trippy, unusual, you've never seen this before world. And we use brand new technology. My company has done a lot on the intersection of technology and entertainment. And we continue to like the worldwide production network I just mentioned with Microsoft. And as I said, using that mocap technology was really also a way for us to experiment with the idea of, of preserving perfect martial arts move in animation. Mm -hmm. So I'm about to jump back over to, you know, your, your live action movies, but before I do, 
let's talk the live tour. Um, this is basically a, a piece of, you know, kind of forgotten media because uh, there, there's just, you know, clips of your characters appearing on different talk shows and things like that. But, um, and there's like some secondhand accounts of it, but I would like to hear from you. Tell us about the live tour. Like what's the story? What was your concept uh, for this? And, and where did this whole idea of taking Mortal Kombat, this movie and video game franchise and putting into a live tour, like, uh, like Ninja Turtles doing their live tour thing. Like, where did this all come from? How, how did this come about? Because it's, it's very fascinating to me. Well, thank you. It came about for me because as I told you, I promised Neil from Midway that we would turn Mortal Kombat into every medium in the world. That's why I bet on it. That's why I really wanted to do it. And I really was fascinated by that because I think it's a way to capture everybody everywhere. And I believe the entertainment industry is growing and growing and growing in a way that it has been for a while, which is the pie is getting bigger, but the slices are getting smaller. So you have to be in the pie business. You have to be in the intellectual property business. And we've been mm -hmm. fortunate with some more things like Dirty Dancing and, and Mortal Kombat. And we've done a lot of Lego things to, to do that. And so live tours are a great way to reach a whole other audience in another medium. And so we wanted to do one and we looked around and we teamed up with, a, with a, a tour promoter who had done some of these things. And we wanted you to be able to experience it live. It was really that simple. You played the game, you've been to the movies, now experience it live. And so that was the, that was the entire thing. And then we got people who could do it. And we, again, so then you can't really cut to a stunt double. There's no cutting. Everyone, you, you see them on stage and, and, and you see them. Um, and so we, as I said, literally the, 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 the Sunday of the movie opening weekend, I should have been partying, you know, in Ibiza. But instead, I, I went to uh, upstate New York to this little tiny place to, to rehearse the tour for several weeks before it opened at Radio City Music Hall. And then it toured the country and the world. I, I'm not sure if I'm following with regards to the actual story of the live tour. That was this the story of the movie in a, a sort of live manner, or uh, because as, as somebody who wasn't in the U.S. when oh, all this was happening, not. I've only ever heard. Uh, sorry. No. So, so the story was light. I mean, when these tour things uh, happen, it's not really like you're seeing Hamlet on stage. I mean, they're they're for younger audience. They're really for little kids. They're lighter, you know. Uh, uh, L-I-T-E light. They're more fun. There's a lot of um, stunts and stuff happening and explosions. And it's just a real kind of a blast. Like, a, you know, they have a Universal sometimes has live uh, shows at their at the theme parks. So it was a, yeah, it was a very yeah. light tour in the world. It wasn't really any crazy new story. Um, there were some el new elements in it, but it was mostly so you could feel like you were really this close to them. Oh my goodness, I love Sonya Blade. Now I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 50 feet from her, and it was really trying to give you that visceral experience that you're doing that. The Power Rangers before us had had a very, very, very successful live tour doing the same thing. So, and and the, one of the other reasons you do it is because now you're building a franchise. You want everyone to watch it, and the audience for a tour tends to be younger. Than the audience for movie, so you want to capture mm. even younger kids and then their parents and their parents who might be young but might not see the movie they might just sort of age out of the movie a little bit now now you've captured a whole new audience so it's a very light fun story but the stunts are great the visuals are great it's really fun it's not too long and, and toward it did great do you recall at all what the story was i've, I've heard bits and pieces like there's something about an amulet or something 
Um, I'm just curious if you remember. I don't, I don't honestly recall the details of it, no. And it, it, as, as I said, that was, it was really not story focused. It was stunt right. focused. It was the characters focused. It was get to know them focused. Yeah, it, it, was, it was some, I, I forget. It was, it was more like, a, it was an episode of the TV series, but it was a very light story. I keep emphasizing that because mm. the idea of it was not the story. When you get into a medium, you have to understand your medium. What are we doing here? Like, like, what is this? For example, mm -hmm. the music of the movies, this was the first time there was, this was a, our soundtrack was the first ever million selling or platinum electronic dance music uh, record. And the, from day one, we said, we're doing EDM with a dance beat. We got kicked out of so many record companies. We had a huge deal at Sony. We told our idea, goodbye. We had a huge deal at Virgin. We told my idea, goodbye. And, and, and so, because we knew that that was right for the music, which was right smack dab in the middle of our demographics. Again, a tour is for little kids. So the story was written really for little kids. You know, I really liked about the tour itself, how you ended up using a lot of the actors from not just the movie, as you were kind of talking about how you had this community and you're pulling the best people for these different projects, but you also brought in a lot of the actors from the, the video game that actually played these characters in the video game and stuck them into the yep. uh, live action sure. series too. Yeah. Sure. Like um, I say, you try and mix and match everything so it's one big happy family. Is there any way <laughs> that fans can still check this out today, or is it all kind of gone to the wind at this point? <laughs> I, I don't think so. I don't. That's the one thing about live theater. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I, certainly, I, I certainly don't have a, a playthrough of it. Maybe someone does, but I don't. Well, how about we move into Mortal Kombat Annihilation? Um, I'm really curious about this movie because there's so many different accounts of it. Uh, I mean, I guess a good place to start would be, I, what was the inspiration for the movie itself? Like, was there an initial idea to continue from the 95 movie ending point or was it supposed to become its own thing at first? No, no, no. It was a, it was a sequel to a wildly successful movie and growing property. And again, with a sequel, how do we give the audience more of what they want, not too much? can't be too similar. It can't be too different. What do we do? And so we did get very, very, very ambitious in terms of size of scope, cast. We went to lots of places. We shot all over the world. We shot in Wales, London, Petra, and Thailand. Am I missing any place? I don't think so. And it was purely a sequel movie, but done, in my mind, in conjunction with, I, was, I had this plan, I promised everybody, so that it was, you know, movie, tour, album, Journey Begins, second movie, live action series, animated series, and we, and we had a five-year plan, and we hit every single one of those dates exactly right. And sometimes mm -hmm. maybe I was too, you know, maybe a bit too precise on that plan because maybe sometimes it would have been better to wait a little while. But, you know, when you have these start dates, if you're starting a TV series, in those days, TV series started in September. You made it or you missed the year. The live tour, there mm -hmm. were times when the tour operator would say to us, no, you got to open here because then we're going here because you're in a bus that's traveling the country. You can't do it during a blizzard. So, no, no we, we, we had these objectives. And Annihilation was, yeah, it was supposed to start right when the movie uh, ended. So you're, you're saying basically when 95's Mortal Kombat came out, you already had this plan to continue it on um, into Annihilation. Yeah, we did. But I didn't know the stories. And we gotcha. Didn't know the okay. Mm, okay. Yeah. Oh, no, we had, the, no, we absolutely had this. I, from day one, I had this plan. 
I mean, I, mean, mm -hmm. I told you, I keep saying this. When I said to Neil, it wasn't the only person I said it to, we will turn this into every meeting in the world. I meant it, and we did. And so, yeah, no, did. we had a plan from day one, <laughs> and we were always thinking about it. That's why I went from the movie to the tour to The Journey Begins to the second movie to the animation. We were always, 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 always doing it. So I'm cu very curious then uh, regarding uh, the actual direction of the movie. Uh, what was behind the decision to sort of skip over Mortal Kombat 2's plotline and move straight into Mortal Kombat 3? Uh, was it because of the attention on MK3 being the latest game at the time, or? Well, see, this is a, this is quite an issue. So how do you keep up with the, the release schedules? Because now you have companies, now they're all the same company. Warner Brothers years ago bought Midway, but they didn't at first. So now you have these companies, very big companies, and the game company has to do their games, and the movie company has to do their movie, and the, the record company has to do their records, and they all have schedules. How do you coordinate it? So the idea was to try and be as current with the games as we could be. Because remember, if you start a movie, it takes 18 months for that movie to be finished and come out. And, you know, so, yeah, mm -hmm. it, it, it was an attempt at, at keeping them kind of in the same place. So on a, on a relevancy level. So the movies and the games um, uh, uh, adhering to each other's storylines as much as we could. With, okay. with Annihilation, you know, uh, it, it kind of underperformed compared to the 95 movie. And uh, there's a, a lot of critics who had, you know, their ideas about it. Uh, why do you think it uh, kind of took a different turn for the franchise at that, that point, as far as the, the movie franchise? You know, again, it, it's like, if you look at, it, it was a number one movie. It beat, um, it beat a Clint. Eastwood movie, I think, and it hmm. beat um, Anastasia, the animated movie. Oh, and wow. Caused Fox, and really? caused Fox to change their entire animation plan. Uh -huh. And uh, the, the guy who produced the other, I'm blanking the other movie. It might not be. I think it was a Clint Eastwood movie. The guy who produced it was an old friend of mine. He called me up and he said, boy, that was a surprise. So it, <laughs> it, it didn't have as many legs as the others did. But you have to take a step back. And now use that analogy that I told you before. Yeah, I think of my job as sort of the coach of a football team. And if Mortal mm -hmm. Kombat is one of my teams, you might say. And I don't think of it that way. It, it was, I had a plan. It hit the plan. It was number one movie. It beat all these other movies. Everything still continued. The TV series went off without a hit. Hitch, the animated series yeah. went off without a hit. I don't love going back and Monday morning quarterbacking movies. You can do it all the time. I don't look at it mm -hmm. that way. I mean, you know, I, I love what we do. It's kind of, you have to kind of play like a game and, you know, some games play a little bit better than others and you get up the next day and play a new game. So mm -hmm. the same way when the movie was a huge hit, I didn't stop everything the first one and, 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 and just party, I went and did it. And when the movie had a great first weekend, but not such a great second weekend. Same thing. I just did the exact same thing I did every time, which is, okay, what's next? What are we doing? How do we make it better? And that's what we did. Focus. And a lot of yeah. things that wound up happening in the Mortal Kombat you know, world about what wound up getting made and what didn't, I can't really talk about because they have to do with deals and contracts and things like that. It's not all driven by creative sometimes. And these are the harder things to talk about or explain to an audience. But no, from the point of view of what we did, um, you know, we discovered a lot of new people in that. It was Tony Jaws' first movie. It showed all these new great places. Oh, yeah. A lot of people got careers off of it. 
I never like to go back and do that only because you could then do that in every movie you've ever done. And always, and everyone's the genius yeah. in hindsight. The, the question <laughs> is, you know, one of the things that's been great about Mortal Kombat is that I, I've met so many phenomenal people and so many phenomenal trainers and athletes and the best athletes and the best fighters will say, you know, if you get hit in the ring, you don't go, oh my God, I got hit in the ring. What are you, you just, you boom, you just punch, you just keep moving. And that's mm -hmm. being a fighter. Yeah. You know, Steve Fisher, a great trainer used to say, the mark of a champion is not how you punch, but how you take a punch. And so you just mm -hmm. keep moving. And so again, we had a lot of good things about the second movie, some things that weren't as good as the first movie, but again, to still make a number one movie, everything we've done in Mortal Kombat has been number one, okay onward so yeah. we didn't win by as much as we win the last time okay let's make a great tv series let's make a great animated tv series let's go 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 that's what we did i mean despite all the criticism uh, as, as you're saying this like we, we can always go back and criticize whatever movie that we've we've ever watched but despite the criticism i do know and personally as well i still enjoyed that movie <laughs> i i really did it was more mortal kombat content and i was happy to, to get it especially when there were so many new characters in the movie. I personally was so happy to see characters like uh, Rain turn up. Or Mac I mean, uh, I must say this, this. This has to go on the episode. I will never get over the fact that I was done so dirty with, well, rather Rain was done so dirty to get killed off without even getting to see him fight. That is, for me, heartbreaking, <laughs> as you can probably tell. <laughs> but um, I was still so happy to see all these characters show up, like seeing Ermac seeing, I mean, Motaro and Shiva done how they were yeah, and was, in my opinion, really cool at that point in time, you know? You know, you know but, I appreciate you saying that, but, you know, you have to look at it from a slightly different perspective. Again, you know, when Christopher couldn't do it because of scheduling conflicts, and the same with Bridget, what do you do? Mm -hmm. We could delay the movie for a year, which, again, would have then delayed two TV series, more albums, mm -hmm. Or do you say, well, and, and you know, I, I, who knows? In hindsight, who, who knows? But we don't like to look at it that way. And so if you look at the fight between um, Melina and Sonia in the, in the mud, where um, I, I directed that. Great fight. And, and yeah. I, I, I <laughs> love it. <laughs> I, I did a lot of the second unit on the second movie, in the first movie too. But I directed that fight, and a hurricane hit where we were two days before we got there. There wasn't supposed to be mud. It was hard. It was like minus <laughs> oh. 10 degrees. I was in an Arctic snowsuit. The women were in these, these skimpy costumes fighting and fighting and fighting. And they were unbelievable. And Dana was an Olympic gold medalist in Taekwondo, the first U.S. athlete in history to become an Olympic gold medalist in Taekwondo. We became great, great friends. And we haven't announced this yet either, but we are making a movie based on the history of Dana's life because your life is so interesting. Oh, oh so that's awesome. From our point of view, and Dana is still being Molina at, at comic conventions all over the world. So from our point of yeah. view... That, and people ask me about that fight all the time. So from our point of view, if you get a movie that people are talking about 25 years later, anyway, you got it, it's great. We, and I, yeah, a movie, we got more friends. We we, we got a, a, a number one. We got uh, uh, some fights that people still talk about. And we got from it a relationship that has led to us soon to make another movie. So from my point of view, yeah. good game. I'm curious, did Threshold end up doing uh, the soundtrack for both the movies or, or producing them? Yes. That's amazing. The, those are still my top soundtracks. Like I listen to them every day at the gym or just driving around the car. Like 
like my whole family knows every Mortal Kombat <laughs> song, it, like from from like the hard death metal stuff in Mortal Kombat One to the you know the the more uh, trance type stuff in in uh, Annihilation soundtrack. So thank you for putting together those artists because oh, they're thanks. perfect. <laughs> yeah, you know my 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 my, my I'm close to my brother, but you know he doesn't really he's a very different guy. He doesn't really watch our stuff, but he he called me one day sometime after the first movie and he said your music from that movie you did is playing in the Olympics right now. He's watching. <laughs> so yeah, it was really, really, really And again, you've got to try new stuff. That, the idea was we're going to score an entire movie with electronic dance music. No mm-hmm. one had ever done that before. I'm not kidding. We got kicked out of all these record yeah. companies with these huge deals and we got kicked out of. So when you try all these new things and we tried a lot of new things in Annihilation, they don't always work. But you can't go back and say, oh, I shouldn't have tried. No, no, no. This is what the audience wants to see. It is my belief the audience wants to see the new and the different. And you have to, as filmmakers, have a touch of the madness and constantly push the envelope. If you don't, you get stale and old and boring. And I would rather succeed, but I'd rather fail spectacularly than just kind of be eh, unnoticed. So you try. Some things things work, you know, and some things don't work as well, but you keep taking the shots. I was just about to say that. I mean, even now, everybody who doesn't know Mortal Kombat knows that, knows the album, you know, in some manner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, touch of the madness. Like I love how that ties into your entire story. Like the the fact that you're willing to take these chances and try new things and pull out the bits and pieces that succeed from everything. So you should see some cool. of the stuff we've got planned now. You know, we just announced um, Wednesday we're going to do. Uh, we teamed up with uh, the Baywatch creator Michael Burke and Fremantle. I saw Baywatch. that. Yeah, and we're and we're doing um we're doing we're gonna put Baywatch theme park rides in the middle of tourist cities. So big theme park rides in, in cities. That's cool. No you, yeah. That's awesome. It it's also cool because this isn't Threshold's first dabbling with uh theme parks because you guys like no, I, I saw you, Yeah, I went to uh Paris Disneyland uh, a couple years ago and I saw that you guys had the Armageddon uh the yeah. cinematics in, in their ride. So yeah, it's cool that no, no, we, we've, done, we've done a ton of theme park rides. We've done Marvel and Lego and Spider Man and Justice League and 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 Star Trek. We've done a lot of them, and they're great. That's it's cool. a blast. The, the reason I got into it is because the technology is always the most advanced of anything in the entertainment business. The technology is always the most advanced, but we thought, but it's too bad people can't see these rides not in a theme park, but because the space mm-hmm. is so big. But I won't get into it here. But we figured out how to do it, and so the first brand is Baywatch. Cool. That's gonna be cool. Speaking of technology, I'd like to just circle back to the characters. It was quite interesting to see in uh, Annihilation characters like Cyrax and Smoke uh, turn up, well, you know, as robots. How did that? How was that done? Well, the, I, I mean, you know, how, how, physically, most of it was just costuming, and um, mm-hmm. uh, and then the the fights were the fights, and we got people who could really fight and. Um, there are some fight sort of heavy gear on yeah, top. They, they, yeah, you, that is hard. And again, these guys were, you know, they were fighting in the, in the, in hurricanes, they were fighting with all these heavy gear on because the, the technology wasn't advanced enough yet to do it, to do it digitally at that point. And they were fighting all over the world. I mean, there's a, one of my favorite shots is Sub-Zero and Scorpion are fighting on the ice bridge and they both flip over and one lands on the, I mean, they're, they're I mean, yes. and there was a real bridge and it was slippery and it was 20 feet high. I mean, these guys were incredible. We had a, we had a, a Hong Kong stuntman on, on the set. His name was Jack, and he didn't really speak English. 
And when we were building those cliffs in that ice cavern, I was on a, we were on ladders and, and they weren't built. Cause when you build a, a set like that, you can build padding into the set. So you can right. hide in the rocks and stuff padding. And so, okay, the guy's going to fall here, but it's really padded. And so you can really design it that way. And so I was showing, but it wasn't done yet. It was just two by fours. And it was like 22 feet high. We're at the top of the ladder. And I was sort of pointing to him what was going to happen once it was built. He would go from here and then hit here, which would be padded, and then hit the ground, which would be padded. And then I turned away and I heard a thud. And, I went, and, I turned, and he did it. The guy, he thought I meant go. And the guy just threw himself off a 20-foot ladder, 22-foot ladder, <laughs> essentially onto a concrete floor. And he was fine. I was like... <laughs> these guys were incredible incredible warriors you know uh one of the big technological advancements or, or selling point for mortal Kombat annihilation was uh, in the the 95 movie you did the cgi versus cgi character having uh goro and uh johnny cage do that fight scene um you know it's kind of zoomed out and everything but then in annihilation you actually had a real actor fighting the the cg uh tattoo monster and uh, like to see that sort of advancements uh, at that time, like the, no other movie had done a actor versus CG fight before. Yeah, it's 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 look, that's still hard to do, but it, it, easier now. But you know, again, I don't like I told you, I don't like to look back, but I always kind of wished we had time to do a second round of those effects because even then, I never thought we'd finish them well enough. But everyone, the studio and everyone said, look, they're, they're, the audience doesn't care. They're good enough. The tracking is great. And the tracking was great. And it was num number mm -hmm. one. So, but yeah, I, I think it was, we, we should get points for being new. But I honestly don't think that fight scene from a CGI point of view was perfected enough. But as I said, I'm breaking my rule. I don't like to look back and do that, but it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, speaking of the tattoo monster, I'd love to hear about the idea behind the well, the concept of the tattoos, because this is actually something that was continued in Mortal Kombat 2021. What was the idea behind it? You know, it was just cool. I mean, it, it wasn't really, it, it, it was, we, you always try and think of new and new and newer things to do. And it was just really cool. Some of the things are thought up on the spot. Like I, I mentioned, you know, Tony Jaa is, he's a great martial artist. Yeah. He, he, mm -hmm. So his first thing he did was more our, our, that movie. He was a stunt guy and he played some of the characters. We used to call him Hollywood. And he would just show us things he could do that we would say, oh my goodness. And we'd incorporate it into the fights. So the way you sometimes craft fights like this, if, if, you're, if you're diligent, is if you're going to cast, for example, a Taekwondo fighter, a kicker, you cast someone who knows Taekwondo. You don't cast a kicker and have them punch. So you got to get the right person mm -hmm. because otherwise you, it'll be miss, it, it won't work. But, but then sometimes you find yeah. that person and the person says, well, look what I can do. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. we have to write that in. So, so we would do things like that. And in Annihilation, we just had very big imaginations and very, you know, like little kid in candy store, very big eyes, maybe a little bit bigger than our stomachs. And we just tried everything. We just thought it was really cool. I mean, I don't remember any bigger motivation for it than this is really cool. How did you end up finding uh, these guys like Tony Jaw and, and Ray Parks? Like uh, this was both basically, you know, one of their first big movies. Uh, yeah. And they, they went into superstar fandom in their own rights. So remember what I said about having a digital production network or simply using 
thinking of diversity in a different way and just looking for the best people all yeah. over the world. Every single place we went, we set up local castings, every place. And just that maybe we'll find some. We found Ray in a casting, a general casting in, in I think in Wales. And, and we just saw this guy and go, oh my God, he's great. And we took him. That's how we found Ray Parks. We just we just had castings all over. That's how we found Tony. We had castings in Thailand. Every place we went, we had casting. People still send me stuff all the time. I don't just look for these people when I happen to be casting a martial arts movie. It's part of my life. I do it all the time. I'm always looking, 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 looking. And so that's how we found him. And yeah, Ray was great and was incredible. And we found him in some small town somewhere. And his, his martial arts were amazing. And so we took him. Well, speaking of casting, then I know you've mentioned that uh, Christopher Lambert and Bridget Wilson uh, couldn't make it into Annihilation because of scheduling. Is that the same case with uh, Lyndon Ashby? Yeah, I, I forget what happened with Lyndon. Why didn't Lyndon do the second movie? Probably, probably. Why didn't Lyndon do that movie? Yeah, probably. Yeah, let me. Uh, I, I don't remember. I think. I mean, I think so. I mean, we love Lyndon, so I can't imagine why not. Right? But, <laughs> Gosh, I, w I wish he would have shown up and got chased by monkeys or something again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm actually surprised with, he with the story. <laughs> so I'm, I'm genuinely surprised to hear that they haven't made like a sort of monkey stock character <laughs> just based on the story in Mortal, Mortal Kombat games. I'm sure people widely talk about that. I, I hope we're going to make a story. NRS, do it. <laughs> So uh, on some of our previous episodes, we've talked to quite a few people who've been involved in the movies. Um, and one of them, we, we've also, like, uh, Mink Morrison, for example, uh, director. Um, you know, we've talked to Meek, uh, Donnie Maropis. Uh, several of the various people have mentioned the unreleased, unproduced, undeveloped third Mortal Kombat movie. And there's a lot of rumors out there on the internet about this story. You know, uh, there's ideas from it being a complete reboot to it being, uh, uh, centric to a specific character and kind of going through their hero's journey. And can you tell us anything at all about what you had planned for that third movie? Cause, uh, we know it, it was basically in pre-production and then it just never got off the ground. So it's interesting to read rumors about stuff you've been involved in because you say, really? I don't remember that happening. But <laughs> most of what you read, I, I haven't read all of it, but most of what you read are, are simply that they're just rumors. Re remember how I said a few minutes ago that I'm always looking for martial artists and I'm always looking for actors and I'm always looking for mm -hmm. new faces and I'm always looking for new locations. I'm also mm -hmm. always looking for new stories. A good producer has a backup for everything. You have a B plan for everything. So the reality is when we might have talked to certain people about doing certain things, from their point of view, they got a phone call and, oh my God, this is happening. And they talked to me. But from our yeah. point of view, we're exploring. Every person right. I auditioned, for example, mm -hmm. as martial artist doesn't make it in the movie, even though I might like their jump front kick. So th there was never anything that specific or that definitive about it. There's not some plan sitting somewhere. There's not some other movie sitting somewhere. We talked to lots of people about lots of different ideas, about lots of different ways to go on what had become this massive, massive, massive franchise. Someone just sent me an article that uh, the, the Theme Park Association or the Theme Park Association in the United States magazine rated Mortal Kombat as now the number 16 franchise in the country. And so when you have that, you're always, always, always planning. I'm planning lots yeah. of things for movies that I've made or that I haven't made. 
because that's what you have to do. So it, it never really got nearly as far as I read about. And, and because we talked to somebody, I hope we didn't give them the wrong impression that because we talked to them, we were making it. But we were just always developing things for the particular time. You always have a lot of contingency plans. And that's really all that happened. So there was no definitive ideas for uh, what I, I think IMDB and, and some news articles were calling Mortal Kombat devastation? There, there, there's, there's no, I mean, definitive current ideas for, for that at all. But that doesn't okay. mean we didn't talk about lots of different things and still talk about right. lots of different things. I still have <laughs> ideas for all my franchises and all the things I'm involved in that, you know, some will get realized and some will. I, well, I, well, I would like to think that all my ideas are genius and brilliant. And if I say they all happen, they don't. But you, you still <laughs> have to have a plan. You still have to think to yourself a plan. You guys might have a list of people you're thinking about having on your podcast. It doesn't mean you have all of them on your podcast, but you might uh -huh. still might have some lists. Yeah. It's the same thing. You just It's just okay. part of the game to always be developing stuff and always be thinking and always have contingency plans and always explore things and always think, what if we do this? And sometimes we still do it. Sometimes you think, maybe this idea would work. I'll, I'll get an artist and draw some pictures or I'll get a writer and write some treatments or or Sean and I do a lot of great stuff together. She's amazing. I know you, 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 you interviewed her. And Sean and I are always you know, coming up with ideas and we walk our dogs on the beach and brainstorm and then we write treatments. And, and some of them we get to the mm. treatment stage and we say, you know what? No, no, no. We, we, we had that recently where we had this, <laughs> we this great idea, but we just, as we started writing it, it just, it just, wasn't the right one. So we, we always have a million other ideas, but that's, that's mm -hmm. just the game. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you said earlier about how, you know, you, you, you phoned them up and you said, I want to put Mortal Kombat on everything. I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. And obviously you wanted to take this franchise in as many different routes as you possibly could. So I, I'm very curious as to how come the third movie didn't actually end up coming about, if you're able to talk about that. Well, I'm really not, but there was a third movie in 2021 that did phenomenally well. So why did it take so long, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. is the question. But no, I can't really talk about that. And, and, and everyone tries to pry into things like that. And I understand the curiosity and I'm flattered by it. But trust me, it's just usually not... I don't mean with Mortal Kombat, I mean with any of these things. It's usually not as interesting as you think. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's lawyers and companies and executives switching jobs and, and all kinds of things that really are just behind the scenes stuff as to what happened. I mean, when the audience sees most movies, they see the tip of the iceberg. They don't see that Spider-Man took, Spider took yeah. 25 years, I think, to come to the screen. But <laughs> yeah. it's a great expression. It takes 10, 10 years to be an overnight success. That happens to a lot of movies. But again, I don't think of it that way. I look at Mortal Kombat. I, I, I've met great people from the from the fighters to the filmmakers to the fans. We've done, I don't know, 19 or 20 productions at this point. It's still going on. We're still talking about it. I never think to myself, well, gee, that, that was a time gap there. Uh, I, I think I'm so grateful for it. And I think it's so fantastic that we're still doing it. Mm -hmm. That's how I think. And so I would encourage the fans, hopefully, to think that way, too. I'm, I'm thrilled by the curiosity. There's nothing really to discover, I hate to tell you. No, we understand. I mean, for, for us, uh, as you've mentioned, of course, it's a, it's a huge feeling of curiosity. We're, we've always been wondering, after all these years, we had Mortal Kombat 1995 going into Annihilation in 97. And I mean, since then, we've had some amazing stuff. As I've mentioned, I've, 
absolutely adore Mortal Kombat Conquest. So, you know, it's just that, that fan yeah, I know love what I'm, I'm thrilled for it, but, you know, so yeah. you gotta, but we appreciate well, you that you can no, answer. But there's not much answer. You're going to say, where are we today? We had a movie yeah, during exactly. the pandemic that yeah. did great on uh, theaters. It did great on HBO Max. It's great. That's how you got to look at movies. That's how you got to look at you, know, you got to look yeah, at the game true. that way and wake up and say, what did I do today? I can't bemoan yesterday. What did I do today? What am I doing tomorrow? That's what you're all doing. <laughs> So kind of going back to, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Sean Catherine Derrick. Uh, she was one of your main writers for not only Mortal Kombat Conquest, but also Defenders of the Realm. Um, Correct. She had spoke to us about Defenders of the Realm, but we'd love to hear kind of your input on it. And, uh, you, you know, you mentioned your whole idea was to bring Mortal Kombat to every medium. But uh, what were some of your inspirations for this particular TV show, the, the Saturday morning Mortal Kombat cartoon? Like, it's still, people so, still so, kind of reference it. Um, so Sean was the showrunner of both series. I mean, the head writer mm-hmm. and the executive producer of both series. She's phenomenal. And we did want to have an animated series because, again, it's a whole other audience. In those days, the animated series were largely on Saturday mornings and they reached a ton of kids. Same plan as the tour to how to reach kids. And where to set it, I was actually taking a trip somewhere in the Southwest of the United States. And I came across the Hopi Mesa, which is a Native American uh, uh, land that is actually now depicted sort of in that movie. And I, I veered from where we were to drive to it and spend a day there. And I thought, this is it, this is where, we, and that's where we set it. So the inspiration came again, because we travel all over the world. We look for artists and people and locations and sets. And then the idea was to to take this group together and now put them in this in this it was 2D in those days, kind of anime style, and put it in that medium. And uh, Sean did a great job, and it was great, and it was the number one show on USA Network for a year. Number one animated show. It was, I mean, it was a lot of fun. I actually had to catch up on it uh, much later in life because I'd only seen a few episodes growing up. I, I guess down to you know availability but it was a very fun show and i i loved the similarity and we spoke about this with sean uh actually uh the similarity and sort of atmosphere but mostly the musical similarity between conquest and defenders of the realm now i'm very curious as to whether you personally had more of an interest in the live action or the animated project but i mean from what it sounds like you yeah, love both. it doesn't work <laughs> if i'm not absolutely fascinated by it i wouldn't do it so they, there's no there's no i like this more than that no, no, no. We, everything we do, we're involved in, we love, or else I, I certainly wouldn't do it. But, and, and, you know, and at, at this point too, now it's, it's starting to, the plan is working and we, we, we're in all these mediums and it's been successful. And we, we, we start to build up these group of great people and working with Sean every day is, is, is so wonderful. So no, it, it just becomes really, really, really uh, fun. And, you know, you have different executives and different things like that. And, and you, we used to have a, a book of Mortal Kombat Bible, what you can and can't do in these shows. It was, you know, <laughs> two feet tall. Um, but, <laughs> but no, they, it, 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 it's different and it's challenging to do that. The challenge is, as I said, to keep these characters and these storylines alive to an audience. And to reach an audience today, I believe you have to be all slices of the pie. So you have to be in animation and, and, and streaming and TV and live action and 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 uh, live theater and, and and theme park you have to do all these things to really reach an audience because the audience is segmented the uh last episode of defenders of the realm had a very different art style and uh sean attributed that to 
getting uh, more financial incentive into the the show. Um, but this was the last episode of the show. How did the series kind of stop at that point? <laughs> uh, the, the, the total business stuff. Really? really? Okay. Just mm. Total contractual business stuff. At this point, you know, you start getting these huge companies who are now involved and it, 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 it's, I wish it were more exciting. I'd have better stories for you. But when you get into the, <laughs> you know, the sort of legal part of it, everyone is doing their job and everyone is fine, but it just gets into some business stuff that, that, um, that gets in the way of some of these things. A, lo- a lot of things, not just ours, but in general. And that, again, that's just the game. It's like saying I'm playing football and it rained today. What can I do? Right. <laughs> you know, as Yanni kind of mentioned, you, you ended up having some similarities between uh, Conquest and Defenders of the Realm, uh, especially with your music similarities. And again, you managed to find uh, musicians that developed the soundtrack for these shows as somebody who drew a lot of inspiration for the Mortal Kombat soundtracks uh, and uh, was it again, this is part of that uh, your whole going out and finding various people that contribute in various ways for your projects. Yeah. So music in a movie is designed to accentuate the feeling of the emotion of the scene. And sometimes people slightly misjudge music in the movie. They say, well, I like this music. And I like this movie, so I'll put them together. Or I like these lyrics. That's not what it's for. It's how do you accentuate the emotion of the scene? And the key, in my opinion, to a fight movie is a dance beat. Because you want the audience like slightly moving to, to the fights, you, you know, kind of throwing punches. If you watch a test screening of a movie like Mortal Kombat, I always watch the audience. And if during the fight, they're kind of jumping up and down, their fists are kind of done, and they're, they're kind of blocking it, then you got them they're dancing. And so you don't say to a composer, Hey, listen, just do something you like. You say this scene, we need a dance beat for this fight. And here's what's going on in the fight. So the emotion we need to accentuate is X. And then you get people who can interpret that, but that's what you do. You Mm -hmm. give them that kind of direction And, and a great soundtrack will accentuate the emotion of the movie and the scenes. So it's even more so it's very hard if you've ever done it, to watch a movie or a TV show without music because because you don't notice mm. it when it's there. You notice it when it's not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely see what you're saying. I mean, that's, I guess, totally unrelated. I, I was recently rewatching the movie Drive and I was thinking about yeah. how amazing the soundtrack was. And that got me thinking, as you just said, about how if there was no music in this, how different that, would this movie example. be? So yeah, I really definitely see what you're saying. And look, you know, my, my the, the, you know, we, at Vestron, we did Dirty Dancing, and which is mm-hmm. now the most successful multi-artist soundtrack in history. Um, I, I, I was the head of production, but the geniuses behind it are two guys named Jimmy Einer, who's still my partner in my company, and, and our music supervisor named Michael Lloyd, both of whom we still work with on, on music and on, on our movies, and they're geniuses. And if you look at that movie as an example, those uh, shots... And, and those, I'm sorry, those scenes and that music accentuated that. That's why you love it. When you hear yeah. the time of my life, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're hearing an emotion. And that's what you want to do. And hopefully when you hear the Mortal Kombat soundtrack, like you, I still have it on my workout tape. You, you, it makes you want to fight. It makes you want to run. It makes you want to punt. It makes you want to go for it. That's, that's yeah, it makes you want to move. That's <laughs> yeah. what we're trying to get. 
that's that's a great example because like uh looking back at dirty dancing even hearing some of those other songs like uh that one song that starts out with baby where uh she's singing to him and they're kind of dancing on the floor right. and things like that and my mom used to play that soundtrack all the time growing up and it it you know it gets you these feelings it gets you energetic uh you know it kind of progresses it but there is such a link to the movie and if you're a fan of the movie you know you kind of get engrossed in it and same thing happens with the mortal Kombat soundtracks uh the one of my favorite soundtracks to listen to if i am driving around and i'm trying to get through traffic and drive like an asshole is uh the the cyrex sector fight <laughs> with uh jackson sonia because it's such a hardcore pumping soundtrack and i can't help but get imagery of these movies as i'm as I'm doing things and listening so, so to them. Ask you and, how does it make you feel when you get that imagery and you hear that music and now you're in your car and traffic, how does it make you feel? Uh, excited. Yeah. Like it gets my blood pumping. <laughs> so, so that's great. And that that's exactly what we want you to feel when you watch the movie and exactly mm. why we want you to listen to the soundtrack. Cause you'll feel the same way. And maybe you'd be reminiscent of the movie, but you'd be reminiscent of the movie because it makes you feel excited. And that's an exciting fight. So we want to mm. accentuate that emotion in you. That's exactly what we go for. Exactly what, yeah. we, what you just said is we want you to be excited by that fight. You know, try Perfect. watching that fight one day with the sound off and listen to a really boring song. It will change the fight. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the fact that you've mentioned you're still obviously working with, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name, but uh, the, the friend you mentioned who does the music, it kind of shows to me that, you know, you, you need to find people that you work with who sort of know what you're sort of going for when you're trying to find music, which fits the atmosphere of whatever scene or show or movie or et cetera, that you're trying to right. capture. Right. And the people, you know, Jimmy Iyer, my partner and, and Michael Lloyd, our longtime composer and music supervisor, mm-hmm. are geniuses. They're the nicest guys in the world, but they have between them, they have over 200 Golden Planet records. I mean, their list of credits is everyone you ever heard of from the Beach Boys to Frank Sinatra to Kiss to, 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 to John Lennon to on and on and on and on and on and on. And they're really, I'm blessed. They're geniuses. So yes, we can, I can call Michael Lloyd in a, in a movie now and say, you know, in this scene, it has to sound like, you know, a Beach Boys song meets a dinosaur with a German accent. <laughs> And, and it makes you want to do the hot cha cha. They go, okay, cool. And then, so they they can. It's like another language. And when they hear these guys talking to each other, it's like they're talking another language because they talk musically. Jimmy has something called synesthesia, which is you you see like mathematical geniuses. He sees music in color. He actually mm-hmm. sees the colors. So sometimes he'll step in and go, no, no, it needs to be more purple. And you're like, what? But in his mind. And that's how he composed it. So you, you have to learn how to that's talk cool. to all these languages too. You know, when we start our animation studio, I I I I kept trying to uh, talk to our animators in uh, in words. So, for example, I said to one animator, "I need this guy to have eyes like like the old actor Paul Newman, who was a famous actor in the '60s and '70s." And he said, "Okay." And then the next week. Great stuff. No Paul Newman eyes. This went on for like six weeks. I kept, and finally I said to him, look, you're doing great. You're a great animator. I don't get it. Why won't you give me Paul Newman eyes? And he said, who's Paul Newman? But he would never think to, to ask me that because that's not polite where they were, where he is. And he wouldn't look it up. So what you realize, okay, mm-hmm. to talk to the animator is I have to show them pictures. And the, to mm-hmm. the animator. 
to talk to yeah. music people, I have to talk in emotions. They all figure out what key and mm. what chords and what music. I have to talk in emotion. And and um and I, the exercise we just did with you, Timo, is the exercise we do all the time. We'll say we want this music to evoke this emotion. We'll get the music. We'll play it for other people, and we'll say, "How do you feel right now?" And we hope they say that way without seeing anything. That's how we do it. So yeah, you do have a, a bunch of people who you talk to like that about what you want. And I work with so many fight people now that it's the same thing. Fight people, you know, I told you, we say mm. new move, but someone did it. If someone, you can't do it in a shot, if you can't see it, we're not doing it. See, it's funny. I'm a, I'm a visual person too. So if you would have said, you know, what do you imagine? Uh, I would have told you, you know, I, I see the the whole base blowing up and I, I can tell you exactly what, visuals are going on in my mind as I'm listening to this music. And it's, you know, it's not the exact scene per scene. It's not like I'm reliving the, the uh, imagery from the movie, but I get that kind of image in my brain when I, when I think about it. And that's great. That's exactly, that's, that's just wonderful to hear. That's exactly what we hope for. So I'm, I'm very curious then going, moving back to Mortal Kombat Conquest and I suppose even, well, all the works. Uh, what was the difference, I suppose, in the whole production process compared to uh, Defender of the Realm, Conquest? I mean, in terms of like comparing a live action show to a live action movie to an animated show, etc. Like, what, what's the sort of differences that you, you go through? So uh, producing a series and producing a movie are different things. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a, a movie is more like a, not a sprint, but it may be a little bit more like that. And, and a, or again, it's more like a football game, an American football game. It's, you know, one game a week and it's, and it's, you know, the amount of time and you've got a lot to do. Whereas a TV series is more like basketball or baseball where you're playing a lot of games every week. And so in a series, once you start, it's a huge train rolling and you have to do, now it's a little different because of streaming, but then, you know, there was going to be a new one every week. So you had to, you were always in writing, in pre-production, in production and post-production on several shows at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you were on different stages at the same time. And same with an animated series. In a movie, you're in the same stage all the time. Everyone is in pre-production at the same time. Everyone is in production at the same time. And everyone is in post-production at the same time. On a series, it's all mixed up. So you have multiple directors, you have multiple post people, you have multiple stuff, and you always have a deadline. You always, always, always have a deadline that comes up next week next week we get a liberal one every week so that, that that's the difference of it. it it's just a lot more uh, moving parts now mm -hmm. in the series once you decide on the characters and the sets you got them so you so that that at least becomes set but but it is it is really like um you know there's an old i love lucy where she's trying to work on assembly line and all the pies are coming down and she has to put them in a box and she gets behind and it, it's a, it's a mess that's what producing a series is like okay Whereas producing a movie tends to be more ambitious, but once you get the shot, you're done. In other words, once we're done in Petra on Mortal Kombat Annihilation, that, that part is done. In a TV series, it's going to keep coming back. Mm -hmm. Hmm. They're both very challenging and they're both very different. They're both fun. For Mortal Kombat Conquest, what ended up being some of your inspirations for the show and, and the various characters that you had on it? Because it was a very unique take at Mortal Kombat, uh, something that nobody else had considered to do previously oh thank you know I, I i you know it's funny i almost never watch my old stuff or my after it's done after we're, after we're finished 
not for any great reason, just because I like to look forward. And at that point, it's I believe once we're done with a movie or something, it's no longer mine. It's the audience's and we hope they love it. And we're there to interpret it the way we can. That's why I don't like telling people what I should or shouldn't have done, because it's theirs at this point. But I happened to rewatch Conquest during the pandemic, which I never do. I thought, you know what? I'm going to watch one of these. I watched all of them. I never do that. <laughs> I'm so proud of that show because it's really fun and it really pushes the envelope a lot. And the oh, experience yeah. and the idea was to show that this has been going on for a long time. You, you say in the lore of Mortal Kombat, once a generation, but we start out in this generation. Remember, that's hundreds of years ago. So what happened in that generation? And they were still fighting it. And Raiden was still around. And he was still the same wise ass that we uh, <laughs> like to make him. But as I said, I think earlier, we really liked that the three main characters did not really know what the hell they were doing. And we liked them making mistakes. And we liked people not being who they were. And, 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 and we liked, uh, you know, Tracy's character turning out to not be who you think she is. And... Uh, we, we like the fact that, as I said, the women were beautiful and deadly and you couldn't tell just you know, nice doesn't equal safe. And, and, and we're so proud of the fights. And that was the goal. Can we pull off a really good martial arts series? And we did not have a lot of money, by the way. I mean, mm. so the way that got made is um, we got a certain amount of money from the studio, which was great. And they wanted us to go to New Zealand to make it. But I didn't because I thought that we would have be limited in bringing in guest stars and guest mm -hmm. stunt people in New Zealand. As I said, that's what I like to do. Yeah. So I went to Florida to, and, I, and I, 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 they, they were great. And they said, okay, you've got like two weeks or something. So I went to Orlando and I held a press conference. Not that, you know, who the hell am I? But I held a press conference and I said, okay, we got, we got this much money. I forget how much it was. I think maybe $20 million for the show, which is very low. And we can spend it here or we can take it out of the country. Now, if we spend it here, I need help. And so, and, and what you find in a place in those days like Orlando is the unions were really good and people had union rates. But let's say you're a union SAG actor in Orlando, you get a good rate, but you might only work two weeks a year. So we said to people, if you give us a 20% discount on your rate, we'll guarantee you 40 weeks of work a year. I might be off of the numbers, but that's the basic hmm. idea. And here, and, and, and then, uh, MGM Studios at Disney World in those days looked for shows that would be an attraction. So if you were willing mm -hmm. to let there be an observation window above your set and let the, the tourists of Disney World come in all day long, they'd give you a great deal, which I agreed to do. And sometimes I would go when I was there, I'd just start talking to the tourists. So from the and, and actually Orlando gave us some money. And so by getting all this great cooperation, we pitched in and we got to make it in Orlando, which was great because as a result, we could fly in all these guest stars, all, all the guest stars you saw in the various series and all the martial artists who came and went. And otherwise, I don't think we could have done the quality, not because New Zealand isn't great, just because given what we wanted to achieve, it was too far, it was too expensive, mm -hmm. too far to bring yeah. people back. So that's how we got the show made. The inspiration was to show that Mortal Kombat, as we promised, is once a generation and, and what was it like in another generation. And we thought, well, in another generation, they probably were even more in the dark than our guys were today. Mm. And that was inspiration behind it. Mm. That's wow. cool. That is amazing to hear. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, Mortal Kombat Conquest is my my favorite, favorite, favorite 
thing about Mortal Kombat. Uh, maybe I would say aside from the games, but I, I think it's that they're too different to compare in that sense. So for me to hear one that you actually went back and gave it a rewatch as a sort of exception and then ended up yeah. watching through the whole thing is amazing. But two, just hearing these kind of stories for me is, is really, I don't know, awesome. <laughs> is it really, for lack of a better word. What do I like about it? Um, the atmosphere, the way that the characters, um, are, as you said, they've shown that they don't know everything and it's, it's a whole learning process. Um, the characters are continuously learning that what they're doing is wrong or that they need to improve in this aspect, that they're still growing as people, that they're still growing as a group, for example, with the main three characters. You're seeing, as you said, Tracy Douglas as Vorpax is there's so much more to her character than you initially are first led to believe. I mean, Raiden himself is, yes, it's a callback to Christopher Lambert, but in my opinion, personally, and I love Christopher Lambert, Jeff Meek, for me, is my favorite Raiden and my favorite Shao Kahn. And when, when I learned yeah. that he was the two characters no. at the exact same time, my mind was blown. Like this, you asked me this question, it's a very dangerous question because I could go on for ages <laughs> answering this question. I loved this you know, show so much. I appreciate it, but you know what? I'm gonna ask if I can ask this too, because I really like doing this. Um, sure. Even though, you know, it gets me in trouble sometimes. If any of the <laughs> listeners out there I'm very curious as to what they like about Mortal Kombat, what they want to see, what they want to see in other martial arts movies. My Instagram is just at Larry Kazanoff. Send me comments. I really like, as I said, I always make a speech before every movie or TV show saying, who do we work for? We work for the audience. So it's very, very interesting for me to ask people what they want, what they like, what they don't like, but mostly what they want to see. What do they want that they don't have? What would they like to see in Mortal Kombat or in anything? So I actually really like that. So I appreciate your guys telling me that. Please let your audience tell me that if they want, because that's how we can make better stuff. Well, I mean, just based on that question, sorry, Fan Tim, I'm going to be very clear about this. I loved the approach that you had to the fights in every single episode. That is something that we need more of. And to hear, for example, you mentioned your other project coming uh, next year, I think you said the martial arts focus. I love martial arts. I want to see martial arts. And Conquest had the perfect blend of martial arts, character development, story development. Like, it was just a really fun show. Sorry, Phantom, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, Yanni likes Conquest so much that he agreed to uh, join me on this podcast and help develop this podcast in order to... <laughs> to get to season two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're still on. You never know. Well, I mean, that, that is actually a question I, that I would like to ask you. Um, obviously, I've mentioned that Conquest is my favorite Mortal Kombat uh, content. I've always been, like, I was crushed when it ended on that finale. Like, it was obviously going to lead into something else. But the problem was that it never did. Now, <laughs> we've had... John Catherine Derrick, we've had Chris Casamassa, we've da had Daniel Bernhardt, we've had Adoni Maropis, we've had people from who were involved with Mortal Kombat Conquest, and everybody involved has specifically told us that they would absolutely love to return to it in some fashion, in some manner. Now, my question to you is, well, two questions are, one, would you do that? And two, could you do that? Would I do it? Yeah, absolutely. Could I do it? Again, it's, it's just, I hate to keep saying things I can't talk about, but it's just, you know, these are massive corporations. You know, Warner Brothers was just bought by mm -hmm. Discovery. But you know what? 
let, 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 let's, let's be, as I say, proactive. Again, if your audience wants to see it, send me a, a message on Instagram. And if I get enough, I'll show the studio and you never know. I always like to keep everyone informed. But you never know what, what I suppose what might happen. But boy, we get so many lately. You know, Conquest is now is on HBO Max. I think that's why. Mm -hmm. Boy, we get so many calls and requests now about Conquest. It's yes. really interesting. <laughs> really do. So yeah, I, I you know, I would I'm very proud of that show and would love to to do that. But again, lots of other people and they're all great and they're all and everyone's doing a good job and it, it's 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 so big now. So you never know. But you know, if the audience wants it, tell me. Well, oh, they do. Definitely telling you. They tell us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, one thing that really does also stand out to me um, is something you have mentioned, which is that, and that you've not just mentioned, but that you've shown throughout this entire chat so far, this whole discussion, is that you have a huge level of passion and enthusiasm for what you do. And this is something that is so integral to not just Mortal Kombat. When fans of any series, any game, any show, any whatever, see people making any content based on that show or whatever it is, they want to see that passion. And I mean, to be able to talk to you now and also to see that you have had that passion is actually such, a, such an amazing thing. So any content that we can get from you, in my opinion, when it comes to Mortal Kombat, I know we're going to be happy. Uh, as long as you're showing that passion. So thank you. No, no, you know what? I still have as much, if not more passion today than I did when I started. It's That's so awesome fun. It's so great. Yeah, it's great. I love it. So going back to Mortal Kombat Conquest, uh, how was it that you ended up choosing these particular characters? You know, Siro, Taja, uh, Kung Lao, uh, Vorpax. Like, what was it that made you decide to include them into your show? Um, and... Uh, besides, you know, the, the whole uh, direction from Midway to not use some of their, their bigger names, but where did these particular we didn't get, unknowns we, we come from? No, we got no such direction from Midway not to use any names like that. We, we, we said to ourselves, we don't want to oversaturate this, and we liked the idea that, you know, Kung Lao is Liu Kang's ancestor. So that means mm -hmm. he was, you know, later years, let's base it around Kung Lao. And then you say, okay, but Again, whenever you're doing any brand extension, you, 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 you say, I don't want it to be the exact same, but how different to make it. And that calibration on any sequels we talked about or any extension of the brand is a difficult one to make. It's a tough choice. So we simply tried to say, who do we bring in who makes sense that they were around then, like Sub-Zero and Scorpion, who aren't human, and Kung Lao, but who's new? The audience got to see something new. And you got to, you know, there's a there's a chance once you've taken a risk to not change anything on your risk, but you've got to keep changing, you got to keep evolving, or you'll get stale again. So uh, it, it was really just thinking who would really be around then, Raiden and the other ones that I mentioned would, but then we took some minor characters and expanded them, and then we just invented some new characters, and we thought that mix would be maybe really satisfying to the audience because it doesn't make sense that you go 500 years ago and you meet no one new. And it yeah. doesn't make sense that Raiden wouldn't be there, but it, and 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 it, but it does make sense that you'd have some new people. So it was really just a mix of that. And then when we invented the new people, we really invented characters we just thought were interesting. Think of Star Trek. You know, think of you know they're always going to they, they the main crew is the same, but they're always going to new planets, kind of like that. 
You know, that's interesting because with a lot of properties, especially ones with have such a large fan base as Mortal Kombat, uh, anytime there's a new character introduced, I mean, this has even happened with Mortal Kombat, with a new character introduced, fans tend to turn against them because it's not their original character that they, they're used to or that they want. But here you managed to bring in like a basically almost every character on there was a brand new character, but fans have clung on to those characters and appreciate them and they have even made petitions for some of these characters to end up in the game themselves. So uh, like, uh, was there any idea that this would become such a hit when you started going down this path? Well, you know, I either from passion, ego or arrogance, I always think it's going to be a hit when I start. (laughs) (laughs) So it's gratifying to see that people still feel that way. But Again, I, I think it goes back to this, and I hate to be broken record, but you have to ask yourself, what's the essence of this game? What are we doing? What's the essence of these shows? Do these people fit in this world? You know, it's like the old question on an American SAT to get into college. One of these words doesn't fit into the others. you got to make sure they all fit. What's going on here? And they're all good fighters. They all have something, you know, interesting. But we, again, I keep emphasizing this. We really like the notion that every kind of hero type person doesn't really know what they're doing and they make mistakes. Mm. I mean, sometimes those guys were, were jerks to each other. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Kung Lao was, was, was too much of a pacifist sometimes. Uh, you know, Daniel was too hot-headed sometimes. I mean, they, they weren't perfect. And, and I think it's a real credit to the way that, that Sean and her team wrote the characters because they were very relatable. And you believed they would come in a Mortal Kombat world. And that's really the thing. You didn't look at them and go, what is this person doing here? They, they, they felt like they were part of the world. Yeah, but we, tried, and we, we wanted people to have new stuff. We tried new things. That was absolutely a plan. That's got to trick giving something new. I mean, you say you don't want to sound like a broken record when it comes to the essence thing. But honestly, that is one of the most important things. It's, it's not, to me, that's not a broken record thing. That's more of a, a sort of principle that you try to stick towards, which I guess also answers your question that you asked me again. It, but that's one of the things about Conquest that really stuck out to me the most. It's that it felt Mortal Kombat. It had the essence of Mortal Kombat. It had that. It had the combat. It had the mysticism. It 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 was. I mean, it, it, in some ways as well. Like it was. Uh, what's what's the best word here? Like the the way that the characters would interact with each other, as you said, sometimes they would show that they have no idea what they're doing. Sometimes they would show that, you know, they, they, like they each had their own identity, I guess is is the best way of saying it. And that's something that's so important to the entire roster, even in the games, in my opinion, I personally gravitate towards characters who I feel really have that identity, have so much story to them. And that's something that, Conquest showed as a whole with pretty much every, even minor characters that came in for just literally one episode. Yeah, They all had that. You have to ask yourself, what's interesting about this person? Do you want to spend more time with them? And if if you figure that out, you have a good character. And also, sometimes they're not who you think they are. The other thing too is, boy, we just had such great martial artists running around. So we gave a lot of the martial artists lines. You know, we gave Chris and JJ and all those guys wound up acting in the shows too. Because these guys are just so amazing as fighters. And you, I'm telling you, you can't fake that. It's not just the actual great move. It's the look that you know it. Again, like you look at a wolf in the eyes and you go, uh-oh, why does he look different than a golden retriever? But he does. And these, these people have that too. When you found out that 
there wasn't going to be a season two. How did you feel personally about it? Because, uh, I mean, you're a big fan of the series as well, and this is one of your children. Um, what were your thoughts when, when that news came through? Onward. Oh, yeah? That's cool. Yeah, yeah I love how you've stayed focused like yeah. throughout your life. I mean, as we've talked through all these different things, it's just been, what's next? Uh, that's cool. <laughs> It's a great line from The Godfather where one of them says to the other, this is the profession we have chosen. I love what I do. It's not perfect. Everyone isn't perfect, but you've got to be so grateful for what you have and onward. There's new ideas. There's new people. There's new stuff. You just got to move onward. No one is, you know, largely out to get you. Certain corporate things happen, blah, blah, blah. Onward. What's next? Hmm. We've asked Sean Catherine Derrick as well as really everyone that we've had a chat with about this. And now we have to ask you to get your sort of take on the matter regarding the final two episodes, uh, what happened with them and how they were supposed to lead into a potential season two. What can you tell us about that? Well, they were supposed to lead into a potential season two. So, <laughs> I mean, we did not think we were stopping there. So <laughs> that was really, not, I mean, had we thought that we perhaps might've ended it in a different way. But there was supposed to be a season and cliffhanger. It was not supposed mm -hmm. to be the end. So mm -hmm. that's what happened. As I said, I, I, I think we probably would have done something different had we been known earlier. But we left thinking we were coming back. Yeah. yeah. Was there any discussion? I mean, your, your answer is actually made me think, maybe was there any discussion as to how you would have ended the show if you weren't going to continue? And if so, are you able to tell us about that? No, because we thought we were going to continue. And as I said, mm, okay. you know, I don't love going back and Monday morning quarterbacking it and think, oh, we've done it this. Well, we didn't. We didn't know. We didn't do this. And we thought, no, we, left. <laughs> we thought we were coming back. So we, that's that's what it was. And I, I thought as a season one cliffhanger leading into a season two, it was really good. It just it wasn't, <laughs> that was not what we thought was going to happen. So, no, we never talked about any of that. The show is always number one. Did you have any particular ideas for what you wanted to do with season two? Because I, as you stated, you planned for it to get it picked up. Did you have a direction that you wanted to go with that show? So I, I, for a show to have longevity like that, you have to start really discerning the difference between plot and characters. It, hmm. it, it's hard to out plot or to overly plot a, uh, a show. If you think of friends, it's really just those characters. And yes, will Ross and Rachel or won't they? But mostly it's about their lives together and who they are as characters. So the goal, and, and especially the goal was, was to get more into the, the, the character flaws and the character development of each of them. Now, to, to be clear, we did not have a complete thing done. Normally what happens is when a show done, you take a little vacation, you come back way before you start again. Sean and I would sit together and we call break all the stories. But... But that was the idea, the idea that Jeff was drunk, that Shao Kahn was crazy with more power. They were mad at each other. We want, you want to escalate that, the inner tension mm -hmm. between these people and other people like that. Um, we really, 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 really liked the Vorpax character. We really, really liked how she tricked you and do you like her? Is she good? Is she bad? I, I think in these worlds, they're not black and white. So the goal was mm -hmm. to push yeah. the, 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 the character uh, a craziness and extremes a bit more than the plot, but we, we didn't get beyond that. Well, in our questions on previous episodes, we've generally had a 
had the answer that the idea was to sort of roll back in time um, and undo Shao Kahn, basically decimating the entire uh, roster list of um, of Conquest Season One. Was that the idea? First time hearing about it. Okay. Cool. Um, when you leave something like that, that might have been Sean's idea. That might have been a great idea. We never really got that far. Yeah. Oh, to be clear, uh, to be clear, it was more that things that she was thinking about rather than yeah, you know, telling us this is what idea. we had planned. <laughs> we, never, we, never had, we never had gotten to that part, but we wanted to push the characters. That's what we were trying to do at the end. They got the, the three of them got in more fights with each other. You know, Raiden was really not just now screwing. Now he's really drunk at one point. And, 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 so what happens then? We, we like the idea of pushing the extremeness of the characters. Could you roll them back and bring back the people? You know, as, as I said, we didn't like to do that in the movies. Would we have done that in the series? Maybe. I don't know. We never got to that part. And again, once we don't, it, 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 I'm not just saying onward as a, as, a, as a great word that you think, okay, next. What's next? What can we do? Why, why think about that? Why look back? It's not going to help us. You know, that's sure. really interesting to me because – I, I think this too demonstrates that touch of madness where you guys were willing to push the envelope and end with such a dramatic cliffhanger of everybody's dead, but you know, you hadn't sat down yet and figured out, okay, how are we going to bring this show back? How are we going to do season two? So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's well, that. Because, because season one was successful and we, we, we did have an overarching story, the basic storyline of these three guys, three people are, are, in Raiden or in their place, trying to, you know, keep Earth safe until the next tournament, Kung Lao won't age. That that wouldn't have changed. The setup wouldn't have changed. It's like, it's like saying, mm-hmm. it, we had a great setup and a great place and a great, that wouldn't have changed a little bit. I mean, we physically would have tried to expand it a little bit more visually, uh, either mm-hmm. in CGI or otherwise. Um, we would have stayed in Orlando. Uh, but 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 the, the thing you would have hopefully noticed and pushed are the characters. If you think, I don't know what kind of TV series you watch, but the ones to me that just are all plot-like, we like less than the ones that are, I, I think TV is really about ongoing characters. It's really about mm-hmm. who these people are and how interesting and complex they are. And Sean is great at writing that sort of stuff. Our actors were phenomenal. And acting it, um, you know, we would have pushed the extremes more and more and more on fighting. We liked the crazy costumes. It certainly would have pushed that more. You just try and push it more. If you say, hey, we're doing something a bit extreme and it's working next year, make it more extreme. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the ways that Mortal Kombat really evolved over the years. It was so extreme from the start and then just continued to progress even more. So <laughs> But just now that you've mentioned, obviously that uh, conquest was really about this trio and Kung Lao's overarching plot line of, winning the next Mortal Kombat tournament. I Was there any discussion as to how that would progress following the next Mortal Kombat tournament? Because technically, Kung Lao would go on to win multiple tournaments until his eventual defeat. But by that point, Siro and Taja would obviously have died from old age. Um, was there any discussion as to this? No. Or was it always just planned to be with the trio? Well, remember, so you know, if, if you go in real time, the series is a year or half a year. So, and, mm-hmm. and a tournament takes place once a generation. So you get a ways of time to yeah. get, you know, So the idea was that this is, this is this, you know, five, six years in time. This is the beginning mm-hmm. of Kung Lao's reign. And these are these mm-hmm. people at the beginning of Kung Lao's reign. We never, we never would have gotten to his next fight. 
because gotcha. eventually too, once he gets to keep winning, he becomes like a Raiden and he becomes a yeah. master. And, you know, he really, I, I mean, I actually found myself when I rewatched the show kind of saying, no, no, what are you doing? Don't do that. And I thought, well, I know what he's doing. I sat there with Sean. <laughs> but it still got me because he, he was just making mistakes. And the idea of, we, Paolo was great. And, and the reason we cast him is because he was very, you know, he tried to be, the character tried to be a kind of sweet, benevolent, maybe we shouldn't do this and hurt people, Kung Lao. And, you know, the, the typical mm. way to go of Kung Lao was to cast some, you know, real macho, let's just kill everybody. That's all we wanted to do. And Paolo really was great at that. So mm -hmm. that alone was really interesting. And, and I mean, I'm very curious now. That, sorry, no, I interrupted you. Uh, well, just the fact that you've recently rewatched it, I'm, I'm very curious to hear more of your thoughts on the show itself, looking back on it now, just because, you know, as you've mentioned with Paolo and his portrayal of the character, uh, I'm curious what else stuck out to you, really. Well, again, this is going to sound egotistical. And usually when I watch my own things, I don't watch them because I think, oh, we should have done that. You know, And I don't like thinking that way, so I don't watch them. I can't. This one, I said, I can't believe it was that good. These people are great. I mean, they're calling up people I haven't talked to in years, like 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 Tracy, Daniel, I'm still friends with, and saying, have you watched this? You're going to start watching this. This is great. And so I was, I was happy. I was really pleased at three things. I knew the fights would be great because we always focus so much on that. But they really were even better than I thought. I, I, uh, the stories surprised me, even though I, you know, was always intimately involved in the creation of them. I had forgotten some of them, and so. But I know Sean is great. But actually, the acting of everybody was really so much better than I remembered. Because remember, we did not have a lot of money to cast people. No one got paid mm. a fortune to be in that show. And Jeff and Daniel. And 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 Tracy and and every the, the acting was so much better than I uh, than I had remembered. I really bought into it, and so I was so pleased. Usually, I'm not. I'm very self-critical if I let myself be. But so that I try and channel into new things. But I'm telling you, I called people. It was some time during the pandemic, and I was like, "You got to watch this." So that it, it, it was. I was really thrilled to tell you the truth. I'm, I'm actually so happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, now. We obviously we've discussed whether or not you'd do a season two or something, but I'd rather just get your opinion rather than actual an actual decision as to how to move forward. If based on your recent rewatch, if you were to ever return to Conquest, would you prefer it to be like a sort of season two, a reboot? Uh, like, what would you? How firstly, what and how would you follow up with? Uh, uh, I don't know. Returning I to I it, but here here's the thing: you have to think about. And this is where it gets difficult on a human level. You have to think if we're saying to people, this is the idea was this is the beginning of Kung Lao's reign. It was 20 mm -hmm. years ago. And although everyone looks good, they look they do look older. And so you can't just yeah. pretend it's the next year. And so if you can't yeah. pretend it's the next year, that this is a discussion if I was sitting down with Sean tomorrow, we would have where we'd say, Well, but now you're changing the basic point of the show. They they can't it's one thing to be naive when they're all 25 years old and they're new to this, but now 20 years later, if they're still naive, they're idiots. So if we're mm. less naive and they're kind of withered old veterans, have we lost something? So that that's the decision we have to make. So you either reboot and recast everybody or say, okay, this is years uh, later. 
I don't know what we do in a situation like this. We haven't had that discussion, but I do find that hard on shows. You know, if you watch when they bring back Will and Grace, when they bring back, this, I, I don't think that usually works because, you know, the characters are buying into a fantasy and, and you don't mm-hmm. want to start making jokes about, boy, do my knees hurt and things like that. So I, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know what we do, but probably, I, I shouldn't say that. I don't know what we do. But that is the discussion okay. you would have, and and if these characters are older now, it would it would change the dynamic of the show, and do you or don't you do that? What you probably wind up doing is you could also I I, I don't have to think about it. I'm, I've never thought about it until you said it because again, until it becomes a reality, until the pandemic, when people started calling me like a year ago and you guys and everything, I never even really thought about it. But you know now it it comes up a lot.
it's actually funny, Larry, that you kind of talked about this. Uh, we when, previously when we spoke to Daniel Bernhardt, he started giving us a bunch of pitches on some ideas. So uh, I think bringing back the old cast members could really work with some of these ideas that he had. Uh, so I'm just going to put this out there now. Reach out to Daniel. <laughs> Let's get this going. <laughs> oh, Daniel's a really good friend of mine. We have lunch all the time. That's cool. He's he's great. He's so much fun. Yeah, but he was really cool. He's a great yeah. guy. He's a really great guy. I've, I've known him forever. Um, we we had ideas of about you know turning some of the characters into villains at this point in their lives because it's been so long that you know you can completely shake up the whole dynamic of the show and uh i yeah i would love to see it come back i like that that's a good idea mm. yeah. <laughs> i think that would be actually pretty cool because then you could also go back with the whole if if uh shao Kahn's one and time has been turned back maybe kung lao doesn't become the next warrior of mortal Kombat until later in life which is why they're all older now and why bernhardt's gone down this different path and well, Bernhard Zero <laughs> has gone down this different path, etc. There's lots of ways I think it could really work. I think sticking to the old cast would be a very big draw for the fans, such as you know myself and Phantom. Mm-hmm. But there's so much you could do with it, just which we'd love to see. Any of those things, it's the interesting question of you agree you want the old cast. Now you think, okay, but now you're 14 years old or 16 years old. You don't know the old cast. What do you do? Mm. Are they going to look... Yeah, I, I don't know the answer. I guess I've never thought about it. These mm. questions you have to ask yourself. And so usually they wind up being a mixture. You, know, you keep someone and someone you don't. Um, and then everyone takes it personally, but it's really not personal. It's just a question of how do we, uh, you know, that's why I'm always interested. I always ask audiences when people tell me that. Like, I'll ask you guys. So from, from Conquest, who's your favorite character? Ooh. Ooh. Raiden. That's, that's a difficult one. It's got to be Raiden. Jeff Meek. Like, yeah, it might. That's mine. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. No, I'm I'm trying to decide. I've got. I really liked Zero. I really liked Quan Chi. I loved Ray. There's too many. I can't. Shao Kahn was amazing, and he was. It was only at the end of each episode or something, you know. Uh, I'd have. To, I, I guess I'll go with with. Um, with uh, Raiden, yeah. That's two for Raiden. <laughs> that or Quan Chi. Quan Chi was amazing. Uh, Adoni was amazing as Quan Chi. I agree. <laughs> I liked him. The the whole you know the the whole argument too that uh, maybe a newer audience wouldn't recognize the actors at the time of Conquest coming out. These weren't. Uh, I mean, they were well established actors in their rights. Uh, they had various histories, like you know Meek had done uh, Raven and and shows like that, but. For a lot of the Mortal Kombat community, we weren't aware of who these people were, and we no, I, 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 no, I, I meant it because you said it'd be a great drop for the community, which I agree. But given that some of the actors are older now, if now you're a kid and you're watching a show and you turn on the show oh. and you think everyone's gonna be 25 and everyone's 50, <laughs> is that is that okay or not? I don't know. It's an it's an interesting question. I think in Jeff's case, it's it, for example, Raiden. It's it's sort of okay. Although mm-hmm. Raiden's really not supposed to age. I, mean, I haven't seen Jeff True. in a few years, but maybe he looks great. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know what? This would be a, if, if someone called me tomorrow and said, you're greenlit, you're starting in September, you got to figure this out. That would be what we call a great problem to have. <laughs> so Yeah, really. <laughs> that problem, okay, but so far we don't. You know, I, I realized, sorry, thinking back on the previous question, there was one, a couple, a couple of really cool characters we may have missed out on. And I think that Chris Casamassa and JJ Perry did amazing in those roles. And Sub-Zero is possibly up there as a favorite. Yeah. 
Mm. So, uh, you know, I had another question. With Mortal Kombat, you basically headlined this franchise in a lot of ways through through your production. Um, did you end up having any hand in Mortal Kombat becoming an action figure? Yeah. Really? Uh, how did that come about? Because uh, I, I was always curious about how we got those because toys. One of, because one of the things we said we were going to do was, as I said, put in every medium that includes toys, toys would be category. So we worked with a merchandising agent who's a great guy named Danny Simon and mm. we made presentations to all the companies. And I believe the first round of toys went to Hasbro. And yeah. uh, action figures are a tough deal to get. It's a lot of money in the marketing commitment of the toy company and they have to make molds and they have to do it. So yeah, you make presentations to the toy companies and that's another reason why when I said earlier we had to stick to the schedule of a movie and the TV series, another TV series, another movie, is because you have all these merchandising partners. And they're planning on this happening because they separately have been developing this stuff. And so, for example, if you have a toy company like Hasbro and a big part of their fall line is you and you told them, here's what's going to happen this fall, you can't really switch that. <laughs> right. So, so yeah. you, you get locked in. Yeah, so we made tons of, of – of, uh, uh, we had a, we had a, we had for a long time a very good relationship with Hasbro, and we're very close to a lot of the people there. And so, um, yeah, it went to them, and we made presentations and made sure it was fun action figures and made sure everyone liked it. I, I, I you know, we're moving offices soon, and so I we, we were cleaning out stuff. I actually found a set of the original toys that we have. In the no store. way. Yeah. Those those uh, actually are collector's item now. If you look on eBay and stuff, people spend arms and legs to get those. <laughs> yeah. So uh, along with the toy line, uh, you know, and everything else Mortal Kombat related, one thing that you did in, uh, I think it was like the year 2000, was you started up Mortal Kombat's Federation of Martial Arts, which for the time, it was revolutionary. It was this whole uh, multimedia online thing where you could basically participate in Mortal Kombat uh, in a way. Um right. But yeah, it, and so how did this concept come about where you start pulling in these different actors and stuff that you had worked with and, and made this online? Uh, I, don't, I don't know what to call it at this well, point. So, it, it so was Mortal so Kombat had, had a good relationship with what's called the online world from the beginning. We were the first movie ever to have a movie website, MortalKombat.com. And mm -hmm. so the reason I just asked your audience earlier to tell me what they want is because when we had MortalKombat.com, which was new then, we were trying to decide some question for the movie. And so I remember thinking, you know, sort of understanding the internet, but it was very new thinking, well, what's this mortalcombat.com? Let's ask them a question. And so we typed in whatever the question was. And the next day we had a thousand answers. And we're like, whoa, this is great. <laughs> so around 2000, we, um, we raised a bunch of money and we decided that we, would, that we would test a ton of, we would just start programming a lot of concepts, like sort of interactive TV show-ish concepts online and mm -hmm. Mortal Kombat was, was one of them um, uh, and it worked really well we had we had like 20 of them but that wound up over the years that whole business wound up becoming something called Black Belt TV and so it just all morphed oh. into that. Like we, we, we learned from all the shows that we started on on it was called the threshold.com that the stuff that was working best wasn't just Mortal Kombat.com it was anything martial arts related Anything martial arts related was working best of all the other things we tried. And we had a lot of cool stuff on there. So we decided to morph the entire company into Black Belt TV. That's really cool. I, did, I didn't realize that 
Mortal Kombat Federation, Mortal Kombat uh, website ended up basically becoming the foundation for Black Belt TV. It um, wasn't. It wasn't the foundation. For, no, no, it wasn't the foundation for Black Belt TV. It was part of a web portal, as they called it in those days, called thethreshold.com. And we also okay. had one called Black Belt TV. And Black oh, Belt okay. TV actually is the one that worked the best, but we found Mortal Kombat work great too. And anything, mm-hmm. anything we did on the threshold.com portal that was martial arts related work best. And our idea of the threshold.com was to develop shows online and then whatever work, take them to television. Gotcha. We had some stuff happen that was sort of good and bad. I can't talk about it because it's a little illegal, but it occurred to us, you know, rather than take it to television, why don't we start our own network? And hmm. God, we had no idea how to do that. I was sort of kidding around and we were doing an interview for the Wall Street Journal <laughs> at one point. And they said, so what's next for you guys? And I said, you know, I'm thinking of doing a whole martial arts TV channel. You know, it would be really fun. It would have martial arts, you know, the competitions around all over the world. It would be martial arts uh, fighters. It would be martial arts celebrities. It'd be a really fun vibe. And we called it, I don't know, Black Belt TV. And they printed it. It is the headline. We started getting phone calls, like from like <laughs> places like Verizon. We want Black Belt TV. We didn't have a thing. We, oh, wow. we didn't have it. We, magazines caught us. We wound up having ten pages in Maxim with with the women who hosted the show. But there were no women who hosted the show at that point. There later were. I, had, I called friends who were models and said, "You want to pretend you're in the TV channel?" And all of a sudden, <laughs> we're getting orders. We had no chance. We had no idea what we were doing. And so, but that's how it started. And then when we, when we really thought, wow, we could actually own our own channel, uh, we thought, wow, that, that's really the way to go. So we just focused the whole thing into that. Wow. It's uh, so interesting looking back on things like that and hearing how they actually came about. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, let's have a bit of a contrast here then. We can move forward all these years now from back, from back then up to Mortal Kombat 2021. I'm, I'm very curious to hear how involved you were with the the most recent uh, released movie. Well, I'm the executive producer of it and thrilled with its success. And I think it's a reboot and there's a bunch of new, you know, not new, but people who weren't involved in the early ones involved. And I think everyone's done a great job. And as I said, you know, you can't hope for more than, you know, during the pandemic, I think Warner's took a really bold step during the pandemic by saying we're going to release everything in theaters and on HBO Max at the same time. They had to take a real shot and they, it was a lot of guts to do it. As I said, I'm a big fan of, you know, trying new things and it worked. It was, it was a, a theatrical hit and of the movies they did that with, it was the number one streaming one on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, I, I, as I tell you, sometimes, when we talk about some of the things that have worked better than others, no matter what happens, great, good, next. And so it was great. It worked really well. It was fantastic. It was, you know, again, a lot of pandemic stuff going on. But um, what did you guys think of it? Well, I mean, you mentioned that it was a big risk because uh, it was released during the pandemic and everything. Actually, it was the first risk I took stepping out. Uh, uh, like, I'd been, I'd been at home for months at this point. I just go out for groceries. I was working from home and everything. And it actually released where I'm located earlier than the rest of the world. So I got to watch it and we released a, a spoiler-free review because we didn't want to ruin it for everybody. So we released a spoiler-free review of it on, on the channel, on the Realmcast. 
but I, I quite enjoyed it. I think that it did things differently. I think certain things were changed that might not have needed to be, but at the same time, it had its own identity and still had that Mortal Kombat feel to it. Um, I think, Phantom, you were of similar mindset to me. Yeah, you know, there, there were things that I, I loved about it, and there were things that I, you know, wish were different. And mm. we, we've kind of expressed that to our audience. Like, it, it's not a 100% this is the Mortal Kombat movie I've been waiting for because, you know, you'd have to completely remake 95's Mortal Kombat. And uh, <laughs> again, like you've mentioned, that would just kind of be boring. But at the same time, I didn't absolutely hate the movie either. And I, I ended up taking a bunch of friends uh, talking about risk. I took like 10 people with me and bought all their tickets to see the <laughs> IMAX because it's Mortal Kombat and we're back. And to me, that's the most exciting part about what's going on now. Very fair answer. I understand. Makes total sense. Yeah. No, I mean, we, we enjoyed it. As Phantom says, there were parts or aspects to it that we weren't too big fans of. Uh, certain changes that were made. Um, personally, uh, actually, this relates back to Conquest in some way. A lot of the fans were unhappy, uh, I guess is the best way of putting it, with the with the addition of an entirely new character. Now, not purely because it was a new character. The, I think that the fans are actually very open to that, as we've seen with Mortal Kombat Conquest. I think it was more the fact that Cole Young was the new main character and was sort of written into being a descendant of Scorpion rather than actually seeing Scorpion and Sub-Zero in their own right and having Cole Young come up as, you know, his own separate character. I think that was one of the biggest criticisms, really. Yeah, you know, but with all that being said, uh, one of the things that we've enjoyed about the production of this movie and, uh, you know, upcoming movies is uh, people like, Todd Gardner's uh, ability to listen to fan feedback and mm. incorporate that. And, you know, there's been a lot of online interaction between the cast, uh, the crew, and and what's going into these movies. So uh, we're super excited to see what's going to happen next. Look, it's, I mean, I, again, from the point of view of some of us, it, it's so gratifying. And as I said, I usually walk around and think of these things, but when we're sitting here thinking of all these years later, I still remember being in Neil's office like it was yesterday. We're, we're talking about the the fourth movie now and the again it's like our yeah. 20th production or something so it's, it's great i just find it all fascinating and great and interesting and grateful for it and um someone asked me the other day what's my favorite thing that's happened to me in mortal Kombat?" and i i think it's really the people i mentioned this earlier but i've met mm. such great people such great friends fighters filmmakers fans it, it's so great you know uh I was at speaking at someplace not too long ago and some guy came up to me and said he was stationed uh, overseas in either Iraq or Afghanistan. And I guess at that time they let the soldiers have a, they, they said the soldiers could bring a couple of DVDs. I guess this was like mm -hmm. years ago, and like three or something. And those were, they had some name for them. Like, cause they, they, that's what they could watch over and over again. It's all they had to watch. And, you know, at night in your bunker with bombs going off outside. And he said he watched the first Mortal Kombat movie over and over and over for so many nights. And he said that's what got him safely through the war. And I thought, mm. oh, my God, if we've done nothing oh, wow. else, if we've done nothing else and we did that, this is so great. That's actually beautiful. Yeah. yeah right. Isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> with the, uh, you know, Mortal Kombat 2021, they ended up 
recording recruiting a lot of uh various actors and stunt doubles um like uh daniel nelson who we previously spoke to did you have any hand into kind of bringing this cast together for the new movie as i said i'm the executive producer of the movie and as i told you i can't really talk about the details of how it got done because the studio you know because i i just can't but yeah i'm the exec i'm one of the executive producers and you know things evolve and change this is a I say 25 years, but 1995, 27 years of doing it, that you, you, things evolve and change. And and the same way I tell you this about every single Mortal Kombat thing, you ask me, what did I did when, when Conquest didn't uh, get renewed? This movie brought joy to people during the pandemic, got them into the movie theaters, was number one on streaming and number one on uh, in, in the theaters the weekend it opened. Fantastic. Just great. Mm-hmm. That's how you have to look at it now. Just think forward, forward, forward. What's next in Mortal Kombat land? What's next in my other world? And what you know, I always like to ask myself, what can we learn from this? You're always mm. saying to yourself, if you're a movie producer, what does the audience want to see? Not today, because if I start a movie today, it doesn't come out for 18 months. What, are they, what will they want to see? And what can we learn? Mm-hmm. That's why I always ask people to send me things like that. So that's what we always try and ask ourselves. What will we want to see? And while it's very fascinating to always, again, Monday morning quarterback people, they wanted to see this movie and they saw it and they seem to have loved it. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I'm actually su- surprised, I suppose, uh, in that over all these years, we've had Mortal Kombat films. We've had 95, we've had 97, we've now had 2021. Uh, we've had Mortal Kombat Conquest. We've had Defenders of the Realm. We've had Mortal Kombat Legacy. I'm, I'm actually shocked that up until now, we've not seen a sort of follow-up TV series for Mortal Kombat since, I guess, Legacy, which was really, you know, an online web series rather than anything. Um, so I, I, I know you're not able to talk about these sort of things, but maybe we can use this as a sort of hint, hint, fans are interested in this sort of thing. <laughs> Again, if fans are interested, at Larry Kazanov on Instagram, <laughs> So, Larry, overall, what's been your favorite Mortal Kombat project that you've worked on? Uh, and, and I hate to ask you to look back at it, but I mean, as we've stated, you've done everything. So if you had to pick one, that was. You know, I, like- I, I, I don't think that the favorite one in terms of how it came out is this, but the favorite mm-hmm. one probably I've worked on was the first movie because mm-hmm. remember, I took an enormous risk to go make that movie. And yeah, it worked and the people were great and the crew was great. And I formed lifelong friendships from it. And we went to Thailand and it was so exciting and everyone said it couldn't be done. And it, it doesn't mean I'm not saying I think that movie is the best thing ever, but the experience of going to do it and getting it launched and saying I was going to do it and taking the risk and everyone telling me you can't make a movie from a video game. Your career is going to be over and having it all work <laughs> out. That was the favorite uh, experience. And again, you know, shooting a movie and southern thailand which we've now done subsequent to that and it's gorgeous places it was just wonderful and great people so the experience was such an adventure and you know movies go a lot of ways even in the making of them and and it just everything worked out wonderfully well in that movie um let me ask you was that first movie was that basically your springboard for threshold entertainment was that the first one that that you produced under the banner yeah, it was the first thing we did. I wow. started the company to do Mortal Kombat. Wow. Yeah, so I took a risk. You know, I was president of Lightstorm Entertainment. I left to go make Mortal Kombat. We were a big yeah. movie that 
its its own owner, its own CEO said, "Ah, piece of crap video game." <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. because <laughs> he's a great guy. Successful, and he liked to kid around like that. But he knew what he was doing. He was a very smart guy, right? Um, yeah, but yeah, it was a huge risk, and and everyone told me, "Oh boy, you're crazy." <laughs> I hear that a lot. <laughs> Touch of the madness, right? But um, I'm I'm curious as to if there's any difference in the production process now over the years, you know, in comparison to say. Mortal Kombat 95 to Mortal Kombat 2021, whether that be the shift between dealing with maybe Midway at the time or dealing now with NRS and uh, WB at this point in time? Well, you know, who you deal with in a movie changes, but there have been very, very, very few changes in the way a movie gets made over the last hundred years. If you really look at movies, here are the innovations in movies since they started. Well, first you had sound that was huge and you had color that was huge and you had technicolor which is widescreen that was huge and you had the motion control camera lucas invented which was huge and then you had digital which we helped pioneer on terminator 2. other than that it's it's if you read a book about i read a ton of hollywood history if you read a book about hollywood in the 30s or 40s i read about these producers they had the same challenges we do right now. So the process is the same. You might be dealing with a different company or a different executive. You know, Steve Martin once gave a speech at a movie he had made at Sony. And he said, I'd like to thank so-and-so who is the president of Sony Pictures now. And I'd like to thank this other person who was the president of Sony Pictures when we were in production. And I'd like to thank so-and-so who was the president of Sony Pictures when we were in development. And he said, and I'd like to thank all of you in the audience in advance for when you become the president of Sony Pictures. <laughs> the world changed, the faces changed, the people changed. But the process stays the same. You're mm-hmm. trying to make a great movie uh, that satisfies the audience in the midst of a lot of people. I, as I said earlier, I view my job as maintaining one creative vision for a thousand people. And the personalities change, but the issues are the same. I find myself saying to people now, oh, so this person has this, so this person has that. We've seen this before a <laughs> hundred times. So, but the process doesn't change. The digital technology is better which is good and bad because the second digital technology gets better, you know, when we did morphing on T2, a year later, you could buy morphing for $99.95 on your home computer. Right. So now, <laughs> shot in a movie that's supposed to be morphing, we think, oh, we better think of something different. So as the technology gets better, you're obviously thinking of, well, we, got, we better even get better. We better think of new ways to use it. There's almost a retro movement now in some filmmakers. You know, I'm going to shoot things the old way. And... and <laughs> So the process is, does not really change. The personalities do. Every movie has its quirks. But you're always trying to do the same thing. And it's important to remember you're working for the audience and the tempers can flare in movies. But I always try and think everyone's trying their best. Everyone wants this, has single. You know, no one sets out to make a bad movie. So when sometimes you watch a movie and you don't like it, they didn't try to do that. Movies are funny. I always think making a movie is like being a revolutionary. You're only a hero if you win. No one ever says, hey, good for that guy who tried to overthrow the country. He didn't make it, but boy, that was a good shot. No, he's in jail. But if you win, he's the president. So movies are the same way. No one ever says, hey, good try, so-and-so. Who <laughs> yeah. They don't ever say that, but that's just the game. So long answer, but it, it, it's always a version of the same thing in terms of the process, just trying to make a great one. Have, uh, so, you know, since you started this whole process, Mortal Kombat has evolved into the point where, you know, they're kind of doing their own 
cinematic movies within the games themselves. Have you kept up to date with the current game or with the games and what they're doing nowadays? Or um, yeah, did you kind of t- take a step? I, do. oh, I, really? I don't do it too. I, I don't do it too much because mm-hmm. I, I I never like to get into the uh, terribly into the details of the game. I like to focus on the game story and the game this because I don't want to confuse myself into thinking the playability of the game. Playability of the game of any game is not, in my opinion, the essence of the game. It's great and it's important, but it's not the essence. So I like to keep up with what the essence of it is. But video games have come enormously far. But then there are other games whose technology is relatively low who do incredibly well. Look at Animal Crossing. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. you, you know, I think technology is great. I, as I said, we do a ton on the nexus of technology and entertainment. But I think it's a huge mistake to do something because of the technology. I think you have to do something and then figure out how the technology helps you achieve what you want to do. Mm. But you can't just jump on the next technology bandwagon or you will fail. I'm curious, are there any dream projects that you would want to look at producing? I've got 20 of them. <laughs> That's the best <laughs> answer. Yeah, of course there are. <laughs> I've got, I've got stuff we've developed. Like I told you, The Fearless and the Fallen. We've got a bunch of other projects. I, I, I tell you about that one because it's martial arts oriented, but normally we don't talk about our things in development. We've got, we just announced Baywatch. We've got the rights to some other huge properties and are, are chasing a couple more. Yeah, I always have dream projects. I always have things I want to do. Uh, Sean and I have a bunch of great projects coming up. Yeah, always. And I always am in love with my projects. I, was, I do not do them. I do not do things I don't love. We have, we, have so- two tests my, we have two tests in my company. How do you make something? Forget We forget about business. Do we love it creatively? Can you work? Because sometimes a movie takes a year. Sometimes it takes 10 years. Can you talk about it every day? And then we forget about the creative and say, is this a good business opportunity? Because we will have investors that we have to be fiscally responsible to. And if the answer to both is yes, we do it. And we never give up till it gets done. And if the answer is to one of them is no, we don't do it. So, are, you know, you've mentioned a few different projects, but uh, is there anything else coming up that you'd like to mention before we let you go? Um, no, the, 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 the movie about Dana, The Fearless and the Fallen, because it was through martial arts and we just announced Baywatch, but that will be, uh, that's about a, a little over a year away and more cool. to come. All right, well, I'd like to ask then, what is your favorite Mortal Kombat finisher? <laughs> well, that's nice. You can pick your own. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm going to give you the same answer I gave you earlier because if I say one and then some one martial artist calls me and goes, but I didn't do that one yet. So I never, I never ever say my favorite, my favorite moves. I always try to think of what is the next one? What is the next big martial arts move I can create? So I saw just on scrolling through Instagram, I, I'm not going to tell you, I saw some, some, I don't know, someone, I don't even know who it is because they only shot from the back, do a move on a back, on a, on a standing back. And I thought, that's a great move. I sent it to Chris Casamarsa and I said, we got to put this in the fearless in the fall. And we get, so I'm always looking for the next move. So my answer to that question is what is my favorite finisher? The next one I invent. I like it. That's a great answer. <laughs> um, so judging by what you've been saying throughout, uh, our listeners can find you at Instagram anywhere else. Nope. nope. Yeah, Instagram no. it is. I think we were <laughs> All right. Well, at this point, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for stopping by the Realmcast. And Larry Kasanoff, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It has really been an honor for both Yanni and myself to have you come on the Realmcast. 
Thank you so much. My pleasure, guys, and thank you so much for all your support for the years. It means the world to us. <laughs> you can find Yanni and myself, Phantom, on the Mortal Kombat group on Facebook, as well as Yanni on the Mortal Kombat meme realm, which is also on Instagram. You can also join our official Discord channel hosted on Mortal Kombat online server through the link in the description where we discuss Mortal Kombat along with our listeners. Special thanks to Uppercut Editions for their continued support, and the Realmcast is the official podcast of Mortal Kombat Online. You can catch up on all episodes of the Realmcast on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, and MortalKombatOnline.com. On Saturday, December 10th, 2022, at 11 a.m. PST, 1 p.m. CST, or 7 p.m. GMT, depending on where you are in the world, Premier Props will be auctioning off over 100 pieces of Mortal Kombat movie memorabilia, props, and costumes from both the 1995 original and Annihilation. The auction will include a live show featuring Chris Casamassa, the actor behind MK95 Scorpion, and Mortal Kombat producer Larry Kasanoff. Regardless of where you are, you'll be able to watch and participate in the auction in real time and can actually start bidding right now by placing bids online at iCollector.com. If you're interested in learning more about the auction, we'll be hosting a live chat on our soul stream tomorrow, Friday, December 2nd with Larry Kasanoff himself, where you can ask him questions directly and you can also visit premierprops.com or hollywoodliveauctions.com.